are back. Buckets and Dan Sportsland. I'm exhausted just talking right now. It is a loaded show. A lot of work went into it. A lot of great interviews. Could be close to two and a half hours by the end of it, Two Bill. and a half? I'm looking at three plus. You nailed your prediction last week <laughs> yeah. of being over two. <laughs> so, Dan, this show, I mean, we've been working since last Tuesday. We've we got some guests, some big fishes this week. It's been a huge huge week we've been working at it almost every single day um let's start with our buffalo sports blast from the past i know it's our last segment but this one is what we did last tuesday and it's a really special one oh four buffalo bisons internationally championship manager marty brown who has such an interesting uh, playing career managing career he joined our show to talk about some of the great memories from 2004 in Buffalo and throughout his entire career. Dan, who else? And What do you think about that one, Danny? I thought it was a great interview. He was super interesting. He was entertaining. He ends with a great story, so I know this is a grind, but please make sure to look at the timestamps if you want to hop around because you do not want to miss Marty Brown. Our other two interviews, two play-by-play announcers, one former Bison's play-by-play and now Toronto Blue Jays play-by-play man, Ben Wagner. He was great. Talked about his time in Buffalo and how he transitioned over to the major leagues. And maybe our biggest fish we've ever corralled, (laughs) ESPN's John Boog Shambi joined us. It was hilarious because he was supposed to be a 430 interview. He uh, Instagram messaged us saying, hey, do you mind if we move it up 15 minutes? I'm going right to Michael K after (laughs) your podcast. So, Definitely a big jump for him going from our podcast to the Michael K show nationally broadcasted. So, I mean, we had a lot of fun and we're going to get a lot into golf this week because we have another hole in one with Ace as he joins us for his weekly segment to wrap up the Memorial Cup and look forward to the 3M tournament this weekend. And we also have a very special segment as it's the annual Pepper Tournament played here in Buffalo. And we have both team captains, Mike Licata and Pat Cahill, joining us. It's a loaded show, Bill. And we have our Mount Rushmore. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about it. And we have our trivia challenge. So let's talk about those oh two things. Oh, my goodness. I'm thinking this episode goes three bills plus. We got the trivia challenge where I asked Dan how many uh, – players can he name from the 06 Mets roster we called in a bunch of or a couple Mets residents fans and uh, our champion from that trivia joined us with Corey Lloyd for a very fun Mount Rushmore segment but before we get to all that Buckets and I are going to break down division by division who we think just to make this episode (laughs) a little longer who we think uh, will come out during this shortened MLB season so let's get started with that yeah let's do this in 12 minutes or less So, again, a very different season than most. It'll be an absolute sprint. 60 games followed by a playoff. Hopefully we get everything in. It's supposed to start this Thursday, which is very exciting. And people keep talking about, you know, who's it going to benefit and whatnot. And we'll get into that with Boog Shambi later. I look at it. I definitely take into account the 60 games. You got to look at teams that notoriously notoriously start slow. You got to look at players that usually start hot. In my opinion, you got to look at bullpens. Who's got a deeper rotation? You got to wonder if teams are only going to go four deep rotation wise. See how many they can fit in with their top guys. So we'll start with the AL East. Bill, what's your pick? You know, I think it's going to be a two-headed race between the Rays and the Yankees. The Rays have done a really good job, especially you know with their rotation. You think about Charlie Morton, Blake Snell, Tyler Glasnow. You know, they have a very deep pitching staff. 
They're always in contention. They always seem to be managed well. All their guys seem to be able to play multiple positions, and I think that's going to help them this year. I think it's going to go down to the wire, but you look at the Yankees last year. They were injured a lot throughout the season, and they were really able to battle through that. Um, you think about getting their top studs healthy again, which they really weren't healthy much of last year. I think Glabar Torres is going to make an MVP run. You had Garrett Cole. I'm going to go with the Yankees in the AL East. Yeah, and I would like to disagree because I hate the Yankees. I just – you can't convince me that that lineup, which is definitely up and coming for the Rays, um, you can't convince me that that's going to just outmuster and outpower the Yankees over a shortened season. I think that getting Cole um, – getting Garrett – I'll cut that out. Getting Garrett Cole to be the top-end pitcher for this rotation along with Paxton, Tanaka – and sure, you could say whatever you want about J.A. Happ, who I think stinks. But those top three, along with a dominant bullpen, I think that they're in very good shape for this season. Especially, you know, you got to consider with all the stuff that's happened in the offseason, there's going to be a few teams playing with a chip on their shoulder. I think the Yankees are one of them. I agree. Let's go to the AL Central, where I have the Minnesota Twins winning this division. I think they've done a good job in the offseason. They had Kenta Maeda. Rich Hill, I think, is a guy who is perfect for a 60-game season. Add Homer Bailey, add Josh Donaldson to a team that hit 307 home runs, a major league lead last year. You know, Jose Barrios is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Love Byron Buxton. Hopefully Miguel Sanu comes back You know, later in the year. Um, I know he's got the coronavirus now, but uh, AL Central, I think, are the Twins. I think one thing we can agree on, there's going to be a changing of the guard. I'd be very surprised if the Indians win the division. They might sneak into a wild card. I'm going to go a little off the board. I'm going to pick an up-and-coming team. I'm going to go with the White Sox. I, I saw that coming. I think they, you know, they're young talent. Again, there's two ways to look at it. Do you want a veteran team that can you know, keep the course for 60 games, or do you want a young up-and-coming team with nothing to lose that really don't even know what's going on? I think that's what you get with the White Sox. You got the – Basically, favorite to win the AL Rookie of the Year, Luis Robert. Probably, I don't know if it's Robert, but I'm going to pronounce <laughs> it Robert. <laughs> it's Robert. Um, playing center field, you got Mancada, obviously. You re-sign Jose Abreu. You go out and get Grandal and Edwin Encarnacion and Nomar Mazzara to shore up some power behind them. What hurts is Michael Kopik opting out. There's a few players that opted out. He had some injury risks that couldn't, but they also were the ones that went out and signed Dallas Keuchel. So between... Lopez, who had a very underrated year last year, along with Giolito and Keuchel. You got Gio Gonzalez to wrap up the five after Dylan Cease. You got Alex Colome, who I think is awesome with that sideways hat. Reminds me a little Fernando Rodney. I think the White Sox, and again, it, it'll be the White Sox and Twins. I think one gets a yep. wild card, one gets the division. I think I agree with that, Dan. And uh, obviously, I like the Twins over him, but the White Sox, I, I'm ready for them to make a run, you know, and I love Gio Gonzalez. AL West, I was very tempted to try and pick the A's or try and pick the Angels. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the lineup is just way too deep for the Astros. I just I feel like it's a safe pick, but I feel like it's the right pick. I'm going to go with the Astros. I would love to pick the A's as well. Again, they're famous for getting off to slow starts, and I think that is going to hurt them. They're another fun team that always comes with guys that come out of nowhere seemingly. But, again, we talk about – playing with a chip on your shoulder, kind of like what the Patriots do whenever they get investigated every couple of years for doing something super illegal, but their fans just brush it off. Obviously, the Astros cheated. Obviously, they won the World Series with a you know a tainted World Series a couple of years ago, but again, they're playing with a chip on their shoulder. I don't think they're, you know, looking up and down their lineup, I don't think that's a team that could stop. But you also have Verlander 
that just started throwing again. He's coming off an injury. You have Garrett Cole leaving, so it's going to be up to a guy like Zach Greinke to step up and Lance McCullers and whatnot, but I think they're too deep. I think that they win the division as well. And now we're going to jump over to the National League East where I have the Atlanta Braves winning the division. Uh, I love the signing of Marcelo Zuna. You know, he had a really good season with St. Louis last year. In part, I know that because he was on my home run derby team. Broke his wrist in June and wasn't the same since, but I expect him uh, to have a bounce back year. And I love Okunia. I think he's one of the best players in baseball. I think he'll win the MVP on the NL side. They certainly have a deep lineup, and it's a lineup that just crushes the Mets every time. And I'm very confident the Mets do not make the playoffs this year. There's just too much talent around them, especially when you got to look at what their what their schedule is going to be like playing the AL East and playing the NL East. Obviously, the NL East goes four deep, at least in my opinion, with the Nationals, Braves, Phillies, and Mets. Then you look at the AL, you got to play the Yankees. You have to play the up-and-coming Blue Jays. The Rays are obviously tough. So that'll be interesting. I think... And they but decide I'm gonna, Yasiel Puig. Yeah, the Braves did, but he actually just got coronavirus, so I don't know what the deal is with that. Um, I'm actually going to go with the Phillies. I, as much as I hate that pick, I just want to go a little different. I think that you know Bryce Harper is going to be a guy that will be right up there with your MVP discussion. I think he's a notorious for hot start, so I think he's going to be ready to go right from the beginning. Again, a guy that has a lot of pressure on him, but I think thrives under that. I like their addition of Zach Wheeler. I don't think he's a dominant top-end starter, but he's a great number two behind Aaron Nola. Aaron Nola's a dominant one. Correct. So I think that just adds adds to their depth, and I think it'll be a a three-horse race for most of the year between the Nationals, Phillies, and Braves, but I think that the Nationals losing Rendon hurts them a lot more than they think. They did go out and re-sign Azubel Cabrera and go get Starlin Castro, which I think will help, but... Um, I think the Phillies take it, as much as I hate to say that. I truly do hate the city of Philadelphia and all of their sports teams, but um, I think the Phillies win the East. You know, I could certainly see that, and, and something I've kind of neglected is to really do a deep dive into the NL East bullpens because there's gonna just, there's so many good lineups in this division. So many starting pitchers are probably going to get taken out five, six innings, and I think it's going to be a, a battle of arms. Who's got the better bullpens in that division? I agree. So let's move to the NL Central. And again, if you look at division by division, I would say the Central teams have the easiest ride in terms of their schedules because there's definitely seems to be some weaker teams in those two divisions. Um, so what, who do you got in the NL Central? You know, here's my up-and-coming team. I like the Reds here. Love the addition of Wade Miley. Eugenio Suarez is one of the most consistent hitters in baseball, consistently over 35 home runs a year. Uh, if Joey Votto can get back to the form that he had a few years ago, you know, I just I really love their lineup, and they have so many guys who can hit the ball. Them ha- not having the DH rule, you know, where they can DH a guy and not have their pitcher go up there, I think it's going to benefit them greatly. I was tempted to pick the Cardinals. Uh, you know, I just love their – I still love, you know, guys like Adam Wainwright. Carlos Martinez has really made a nice transition to the bullpen to be their closer. But I'm going to go with the Reds here, Dan. Yeah, that's definitely an up-and-coming pick. For sure, a popular one. I've said that for a while now, but not so fast. I don't think the Reds are there yet. I certainly think they get into the playoffs as a wild card. But I'm going to go with the safe pick and go the St. Louis Cardinals to repeat. They're basically bringing everybody back. And I think when it comes down to something like this, you need to rely on an ace. And as much as I love Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo, and Trevor Bauer, I think those are all definitely – the next tier type of starters, which again, they might have more depth, but I think Jack Flaherty is going to win the NL Cy Young, or at least be right up there. He had a monster year last year. He's the ace of the Cardinals. So 
I'm going to go with the Cardinals again. I think Paul Goldschmidt's as steady as they come. They have just the lineup of the same guys you think of, you know, Bader and DeYoung, all guys that, again, the only reason I remember is that they kill the Mets. But I think that's going to be a veteran-laden team. They still have Yachty Molina, which is just insane to think about. So I'm going to go with the Cardinals to win the division. I'd say both because Luis Castillo is definitely an ace. And if Trevor Bauer can get back to four, man, that, that staff is really good. Yep. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> NL West. Uh, NL West. Here's my here's my buckets crazy pick. You know, in my five year draft, long story short, I took the Dodgers. I think they get in, and obviously they're heavy favorites. But the NL West winners of 2020 shortened season, Arizona Diamondbacks. Okay, I'm gonna tell you why. They had a really good off season. You know, they had guys like Madison Bumgarner. That went unnoticed. Steven Vogt. They're totally. You know, they kind of revamped their lineup. With the signings. Steven Volch, your next big acquisition. No. <laughs> Cole Calhoun and a guy who I've always really liked is Starling Marte. They got five guys in that lineup who had a lot of pop. They play really good defense. Um, love Robbie Ray. I just, I, I just, I don't know. I think that they're going to kind of put some magic together. You got Tori Lavolo. You know, if, if the Blue Jays can't come to Buffalo, well, then Tori Lavolo, former manager of the Bisons, He's going to make some magic happen out west. Diamondbacks, NL West champions. I think you're insane. I think the Dodgers, I, when I say that have the best record in baseball after these 60 games, I think it's by six, seven games. I think that adding Mookie Betts, who's you know a top-five player in baseball, to go along with the lineup they've already had um, just makes them insane. They, got, I mean, it's ins- they run their franchise like a video game. They have the best record year in and year out, and they also have the top player in terms of preseason odds to an NL Rookie of the Year in Gavin Lux. Dustin May is also going to make a full-year impact this year. They're just so deep, so good. I think it's a no-brainer. And I also, my hot take out of this division is I think the Giants have the worst record in the NL. I definitely can see that happening. So, sorry about that, Brendan Graham. Um, All right, World Series picks. Mine is going to be a boring one. It's going to be a popular one among most, but I would say Dodgers over Yankees. Well, mine is a little bit different. I got the Dodgers getting in as a wild card team, and they're going to make it all the way to the World Series, but they're going to get stopped. They are going to lose the World Series against the Minnesota Twins, who will be the 2020 shortened season Major League Baseball World Series champions. You heard it here first, Twins. World Series champions. There you have it. Take it to the bank. The Buckets guarantee Twins World Series champion. So before we move on, let's talk quickly about the prospect of the Blue Jays playing in Buffalo. I feel terrible. I was at a social distancing birthday, and we're saying that it's a lock that the Blue Jays are playing in Buffalo, but apparently that's not going to happen. There's still a lot to determine. Apparently the players don't want to play in Buffalo, despite it being the most logical sense in terms of coronavirus cases and what they were supposed to be between two places it was down in florida in their spring training facility and florida's been getting blown up with coronavirus cases or in buffalo their triple a affiliate right down the road but the lighting's an issue the clubhouse is an issue again you can adjust that by turning some suites into some locker rooms like the red sox have done at fenway and but apparently and again i could see it i mean it's just a not major it's not a major league facility so in terms of like the medical stuff the rehab stuff it's just doesn't seem up to par which and again is the are the dimensions a major league yeah they that's fine you know it makes sense 
Yeah, I'm sure they can broaden their reach in terms of a fan base, you know, getting some more fans from Western New York and getting some more whatever you want to call it. But it doesn't make a ton of practical sense when it comes to players, and players are going to kind of have the final call on this. You know, I, I've heard that in conference calls between ownership and players over the weekend, players are just not wanting to play in Buffalo. A lot of them have already played in Buffalo the clubhouse is small. It's probably does not. It's not conducive to social distancing. Um, so other than it being close to Toronto, which really doesn't matter because you're going to be in a bubble when you're at your, I guess, home site anyway. I guess it doesn't make the most sense. And I had my hopes absolutely skyrocketed over the weekend. I was so fired up just to think that Major League Baseball would be happening downtown. It would be just the coolest story to look back on. But like all things, it just got ripped out of us. I think it would have been announced already if, if they were going to play in Buffalo. So I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're going to play in a city like Pittsburgh or Cleveland and just be able to manage um, times that they play because there's no home field advantage anyway. Yeah, well, hopefully we're wrong. Hopefully we do get some baseball. But that's our very quick baseball preview. Again, this show is loaded. We have a trivia contest. We have a Mount Rushmore. We have three interviews. We have some golf talk. So let's send it over right now. Our hole-in-one with Ace Vitrano, followed by our pepper tournament preview with captains Michael Cotta and Pat Cahill. Here we go! Remember, it's all in the head. Hey, it's all in. Come on. Work with me now. It's all in the head. Yeah, it's all in the Get off of me! Son of a bitch, Paul, why didn't you just go home? That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Answer me! Talk about a hole-in-one! Joining us for his weekly segment now is Ace Vitrano in our hole-in-one with Ace. We are going to recap the Memorial Tournament here. Ace, it looked like a, a mixed leaderboard for a while, but then John Ram ended up going away with it. So tell us your thoughts on the tournament. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I mean, last week I, I sat here and I said, hey, you know, I, I kind of like Rory because he's, he's the number one player in the world and He's kind of got overlooked, and the game's, you know, close enough. It's not he's playing bad. He's he's right there, I think. And it turns out it was the other guy. Uh, it was Trump. Well, basically, you'd say the same exact thing. Um, he is now the number one player in the world after yesterday. Uh, the win vaulted him there. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, he's he's there for a reason, right? He's, he's extremely talented. He, um, you know, he kind of loses his temper sometimes. But but the game's there for sure, and, and – Kind of the, you know the shot of the tournament, of course, was was him on 16 or he chipped in. It's kind of just a, a you know good staple of his game. I mean, he was he was number one um, around the green this week, which is which was going to be vital. We all knew that, and he uh, you know he basically just showed to to the world that hey, I'm the number one player in the world, and and you know everything backs it up, and he's he's doing it. So good for him. So speaking of Ram on 16, the con- little controversy it was really funny watching the post round interview how he kind of bettered the ball before the shot. Um, he looked very surprised when they brought it up. When he chipped in on 16, do you think he knew 
that he bettered the ball before he swung. I do that like every time I swing. Yeah, I don't. I don't think with Nailotan, it literally only ruled like two dimples, right? And it's not like it was a huge thing. It didn't even like you know improve his lie. Which is kind of, I'm actually kind of surprised they they gave him the penalty. Um, kind of, you know, I was I was listening at that point, and um, you know, I kept saying that. If it's only something like the camera can catch in slow mo, oh not slow mo, but just, just zoomed in like that, um, it's not doesn't have to be a penalty even if it moves. So I'm kind of surprised they still do it. Obviously, it didn't end up mattering at all. But um, what, what's always just interesting to think about is that I don't think. I mean, I would, again, I maybe was back and forth watching, but I don't think they ever told him. Right? Like he didn't know he until didn't, after he the round. He didn't know. Yeah, I, so it's just always interesting to think. Like, he doesn't hold that, which obviously was an amazing shot to hold that. And Palmer had a putt from just off the green from, what, like 15 feet. It's not like that was impossible for him to make. If that just goes the other way, then technically they're tied. And who knows? What, and, but neither will know that. So that's always just, I mean, it, it's kind of stinks when these rules and these things that always like end up taking over the, the discussion the day after. But, um, I don't know. I, I, you, you think, too, I mean, you're telling me that didn't happen to anyone else all week, especially in this rough. Right. But just because, you know, the camera's right behind zoomed in on Rom, that, I don't know. Anything where it turns into not being a level playing field can is sometimes something that, you know, gets me going. But, um, I mean, I, I guess I guess by the rule, you know, it didn't move. So, um, I don't know, it's just kind of one of those things where they, they can tweak the rule, you know, year for year as much as they want, but um, I guess it's kind of hard to get it perfect. I don't know. Ace, I'll, I'll, I tried to catch as much as I could this weekend, and one thing I did get a, a great dose of was DeChambeau imploding on that one hole. And how funny, there's two things. That after First off, after we talked about what a douche he was, but calling over for a second ruling to come over and ask if the ball was out of bounds when clearly, to me, clearly the ball was out of bounds. And I want to know, even if it wasn't out of bounds, what he planned to do with that shot that he wouldn't have just benefited anyway from a drop. But... Also, and then that clip of him on the green trying to, like, how many, well, at least me, how many times I've been on the green trying to recap all, like, 12 of my shots. I loved watching a PGA golfer do that. Yeah, I, I agree. No matter whether it's Bryson or even if it was something I like, it's still just hilarious to watch because it is, I mean, it's obviously just relatable for so many people out there. Even, even, even the good guys that we play with, I mean, they'll still have holes like that. It's just like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Um, no, that that was that was hilarious to watch. I didn't know until um, I think I heard it like later in the day that I think they said Phil and I don't know if it was maybe even Phil twice or someone else maybe did it. They fence. did reference was that? With are you talking about the like the mesh fence, so they were able to hit it out like a, the same type of thing because that's what DeChambeau kept saying to the guy. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I I never actually like saw the highlight of that. I didn't even know that was a thing until I, I saw it brought up. But I, yeah, I would have loved to see what he would have planned to do with with a fence like that. Because that that fence wasn't moving. I know he's big, bulky Bryson, but but that fence ain't moving. So um, that I I kind of wanted to let him hop just to see what would have what about what the outcome would have been. But no, that that was it was it was funny to watch, like you said, for multiple reasons for sure. Ace, it was, it was kind of interesting to me looking at the leaderboard yesterday. Literally every single golfer besides Matt Fitzpatrick went over 70. So what made for such more of a difficult day yesterday? Yeah, I think I heard that they there was more rounds in the 80s over the weekend than there were in the 60s, which is, I mean, even for, you know, quote-unquote U.S. Open type conditions, that, I mean, that's absurd. Um 
I, I don't know. I, it's well, what made it tough was, I mean, the Greens were just absolute rocks. I mean, they were. So I don't, I don't know if you saw. They actually so that they were going to tear up the golf course as soon as the tournament was over. They, they're redoing a bunch of stuff on the course. They actually started as the guys. They started on the front nine as the guys were still playing on the back. Um, so I think they did cut. I don't know if it was just on Twitter if they actually cut to it on live broadcast. But um, basically, when you plan on like you know tearing it up anyway, you kind of don't really care what conditions they get during the tournament because as long as you have to try and like salvage anything if they're planning to work on up anyway. So, I mean, these greens were just, I mean, it literally was cement. It was, I think mean, you could see on, I know on one, uh, it, was a, it was a good camera view of it. I mean, they were literally turning purple um, in spots because they were that just, just dried out. And, I mean, they didn't do anything to them all week. So, um, the greens went, you know, first and foremost. The rough was, you know, it was pretty much U.S. Open-style rough. Um, you know, the pins were just in, in the absolute, you know, worst spots possible. The wind, I think, picked up yesterday. Uh, same thing on Thursday. It just, you know, if, if they wanted him, I think I saw too, it was the highest overall scoring average in non-major in five years, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I think average, the average score yesterday was 76, I believe. So, which is four over. So, it's, I don't know, I, I enjoy that because I don't think we get that all the time where I don't mind that once in a while. Um, you know, I know some, you know, some people might not like it, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick of the birdie fest week after week. So, it, it was. I enjoyed watching it from that perspective. Tony Finau, I don't understand this guy. He just can't seem to bust through over the weekend. He goes 66-69 Thursday, Friday, and follows up with a 73 and a 78 yesterday. I mean, does he have major wins, or does he have wins on, on the tour? And, like, what is your expectation for this guy going forward? Yeah, so he only has one win, um, which is kind of the thing that, People always talk about him, which is which is kind of sick. I mean, he was a really good golfer. He's been on on you know Ryder Cup, President Cup teams. I mean, and he's deserved. I mean, the guy's you know consistent. He's really consistent, you know, with his results year for year. Um, it's just yeah, it's really just the actual wins. Um, this this week again is kind of just a small sample size of his entire career. He's he's always kind of right there and um, just can't seem to, to push down. A, a lot of people joke about so the event that he won. Um, I don't even know a year ago now, it was at least a couple of years ago now, but it was the Puerto Rico Open, which is like almost not even, I think it's like a um, like a split field event. I think there's a bigger event usually that, you know, goes on the same weekend as it. Um, and the, the funny thing with that is that no one that has ever won that event has ever won again on the PGA Tour. And obviously that's not something, so that's actually what, what Hovland won this year. Um, that was his win. So, I mean, I'm, again, between Holland and Fino, you expect, obviously, wins are going to come at some point here. But, um, yeah, Fino, I mean, he, was, he was up, what, three? He was up three, like, on after 11 on Saturday, and then an hour later he was down three. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just a mental thing with him. I mean, it's not physical. The game's there. Um, but, yeah, he just got, I mean, I guess it's just some mental demons he's got to get over. I mean, once he does so, I mean, I think they're going to start going because he, he the thing with him is he consistently contends in these strong field events. Um, you look at his results in majors last couple of years, he, he has multiple top fives. So it's, he's, he's kind of almost like a big game hunter in that way, but he just, you know, he's a big game hunter for a top five, not a win yet. So like I, said, well, I think once, once he kind of breaks through with another one, I think he's going to start coming more frequently. And before we get to this weekend, quickly on Tiger Woods, I was watching some, um, I guess, analysis of his swings after the first couple rounds, and he barely snuck in, made the cut. It helped that DeChambeau blew up. But 
it just seemed like there was something just a little off with his follow-through, and he kept pushing everything right. Could be the back. Could be the fact that, I mean, he hasn't played in a tournament in how long due to the pandemic. And afterward, he was asked about his aging. He says, it's not fun. Early in my career, I thought it was fantastic. I was getting better and better. Now I'm just trying to hold on. So definitely not the confident Tiger we're used to hearing. So do you think it was just a case of shaking off the rust, or could we be in trouble moving forward here? Yeah, I mean, the that quote you just read, I mean, how sad is that to hear? Very. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of just like, oh boy, like that's, I mean, obviously we're all, we're always thinking about his back and, and his health and for him to just come out and say that and just be that blunt with us, just like, man, that stinks. <laughs> um, he, yeah, you know, he, I know he, he definitely admitted that it was the back on Friday. That's, that's kind of why he went through a good round. Um, and yeah, I don't know if it's just, you know, the lack of competitive rounds, you know, they said this, this was the first event in five months, so. I don't know if it just, you know, wasn't wasn't ready or um it's gonna be interesting. I mean, he's gonna have to if he, I mean I would assume he wants to play some golf here coming up though. We got three majors left. Right. We have um there's a WGC next weekend. Yeah, um I was coming to but next weekend before that first major. Um and yeah, I don't know. I mean it's it's you know, he was pretty much in relation to the field over the weekend. you know, I think he shot a couple over each day or something, um, which is everyone was doing, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, and I, it's just so weird too. I mean, he was paired with Rory and Brooks the first two days. And just, just, you know, just kind of another thing, just to see that group with no fans, it's just, yeah, ooh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's weird, man. <laughs> just, and just like that with the back, it's, um, not encouraging, but hopefully it was just a one-time thing. I don't know. And Ace, looking forward to the 3M tournament this week in Minneapolis. Not many names outside of DJ Brooks and a couple other guys. A lot of guys taken this week off. So I'm going to ask you, any other guys to watch out for? I look at the the field and there's a lot of names I don't recognize. Yeah, I it, it, I'm well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you a, a name certainly now because you're right. It is. I think it's going to be a week where we have someone come from just out of nowhere, and you know you have all these guys that just. You know, the guys that, are, that did play, you know, this past weekend that are playing again, I don't know how they can get their mind ready to go because of how much, just how grueling these rounds were mentally over the weekend. Um, I'd almost look to, to go against those guys. Um, I could see this being a week where maybe you get a first-time winner, someone who's just kind of been, been grinding and, and um, you know, still waiting to break through for that first win. Um, or like I said, I could definitely just see it being, especially, too, this is, uh, this is only the second year of this event. Last year's debut, so we don't even have any, you know, that much of a sample size to go off in terms of stats. It's um so this was actually where I know kinda of we brought it up last week. Um this was where Matthew Wolf won his uh for, got his first win last year. Um so I know we, we had talked about him with, with Mark Allen Hovland kinda of all being grouped together. Um I could see it being very similar this year. I could see it being maybe a young guy uh just trying to get his cards cured or, or something like that because it's after I I'm basically treating this past weekend like a major. Um and usually that first event Following that, I, I look to to try and you know go down the board a little bit and, and try and you know maybe pick a couple long shots. But yeah, just my prediction. Just so we're out on the, I'm going with either Siwoo Kim or Aaron Wise this okay. week. Do you have any uh, facts to back that up, Bill, or are you just going through and just picking a name? I like both golfers. Okay, I think both yeah. And Aaron Wise on a nice little rest. He he didn't make the cut this past week. Uh, really good with his irons. He's been very consistent with his driver this year. He's got to sharpen some things up with the putter, and he could be near the top of the leaderboard this week. I I, I like that. I like that. He kind of fits that um, 
a similar profile in Matt Wolf, where he's a young guy who is who is pretty good in college, and I think you know he's going to get a win here at some point. I think so. I don't, I don't mind that, Bill. It's a good pick. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Uh, Ace, we really appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you next Monday, and enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah. You too, guys. Thanks. The preview of the pepper is sponsored by Romeo and Juliet's Cafe. Romeo and Juliet's brings the culture and exquisite taste of Italy to Buffalo. Ever since they opened in 1998, they've offered a variety of freshly baked goods such as Italian cookies, cannoli, pizza, focaccia, panini, breads, wine, and much, much more. Dan, where can our loyal listeners find Romeo and Juliet's? I'm glad you asked, Bill. You could find them on Sheridan Drive in both Williamsville and Tonawanda, or my personal favorite, on Hurdle Ave in Buffalo. We are really looking forward to diving into some Romeo and Juliet's Saturday after the first round of the Pepper, so we are very excited to have them as our sponsor. Romeo and Juliet's, Italian cuisine at a Buffalo dime. We are very happy to be the number one podcast of the annual Pepper Golf Tournament happening in Buffalo this year, and usually it's in Canada, but due to the pandemic, we're holding it here in the States. We have both team captains, Mike Licata and Pat Cahill, joining us. Mike, thanks for making time for us this morning. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. Been following right along since this all started, and uh Love what you guys are doing and happy that uh, the Pepper and, and Buckets and Dan are able to come together and talk some golf. And Pat, uh, it's an honor to talk to you. It's a long time. Uh, hope you're doing well during this whole quarantine. Of course, absolutely. Thank you for having me, guys. I've been, uh, I might not be on Twitter, but I've been following the Mount Rushmore. I think you guys are doing great, so keep it up. Thank you. And Pat, let's start with you because apparently you're the... I guess, the cohort of this. So tell us how this tournament got started and a little bit of the history for our fans that might not know. Yeah, well, it actually started, uh, so in 2017, um, we always do like mini Ryder Cup style whenever we go out and play with just like a foursome. Um, so we just got like eight of us together um, and just kind of wanted to do a two-day tournament. Um, and uh, so we just kind of divvied up into uh, little mini matches. So we do four nine-hole matches over the course of two days. Um, we usually do scramble and best ball. It always ends with singles though on Sunday. Um, each match, each match is worth a point. Um, and the name pepper comes from, um, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, um, tin cup. Um, it's a personal favorite of basically everyone in the group. Um, but there's a scene in there where, uh, uh, they're on the range at the U S open and, uh, Kevin Costner's, you know, sculling the ball all over and his caddy goes, you know, you're firing chili peppers up Lee Jansen's ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, slowly but surely, we started throwing that out on the course. Whenever someone hit a bad shot, you know, you're firing a chili pepper. That abbreviates the pepper. And next thing you know, we have a logo and a trophy. And in a snap of a finger, we got a little mini tournament. That's just kind of taken off since then. I love it. And, Mike, were you always the second captain? I was, yeah. We we uh, started in 2017 four-on-four four and, and was a captain then. And we've lost a few along the way, but the core group has – stayed along for all four years and yeah we're, we're uh got our first win team lakata got our first win last year so 
we're hoping to ride that momentum into a, a repeat. And Mike, Mike, let's stay with you. So can you do me a favor and break down your team for us? Maybe give us your strengths and any possible weaknesses? Yeah, yeah. It's an easy. It's a one-part question. We don't have any weaknesses. So um, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk. I can talk a little bit about about strengths. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, kind of kind of our top dog, Lou Spina, who is a friend of the show. Um, oh, yeah. He, he big, big-time friend of Buckets and Dan. Um, but yeah, he's our, he's kind of our top dog. He's the guy we put against, you know, the other team's top dog, whoever's playing the best. We, we throw Lou at him and, and he's been, you know, six points in four years, but he's been involved in just tough match after tough, tough match. Um, and then we got a, a number two who can just knock your teeth in and Frank Briandi, an absolute bulldog, um, no pun you know, intended. had a, had a hell of a of a career over at Ken Maurice to athletically, and and now he's uh, he's kind of Lou Lou and and Frank are kind of a two headed monster up there, um, and and then you know there's not much drop off, Dan. There's not much drop off. We got guys who can come in and absolutely swing it. Um, you know, I'm looking at guys like Pete DeSabio, friend of the show. You know, I'm looking at guys. Sabio has improved immensely. When you look at Pete's golf career four years ago, three years ago, whenever he first joined, you know, he was kind of that, that, that next tier guy, but he can swing it with anybody. Now he's really improved his game. Uh, same with Eddie Sudik, who, who in year one, I think Pat, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but in year one, I think he may have gotten swept and, and, and then followed it up in, in last year by winning a whole bunch of points and, and being in matches and Chad Mosier, who, 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 you know, you guys both know real well, yep. friend of Buckets and Dan. We, we really should be sponsored by Buckets <laughs> and Dan, the way, the way our team listens. But, um, yeah, that's the team and, and myself. And we got our first win last year, like I said, but we got some talent. Um, you know, I think if anything, uh, looking at weaknesses, um, you know, maybe, maybe we get a little complacent. Maybe we have one or one oversleep the tea time on Sunday. That's really my only concern, I would say. Pat, can we can you go ahead and walk through your team the same way, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um so my team is um you know without a doubt Jim Abbott. Um we go as Jimmy goes. Um looking for a big year out of him this year. Um he's gonna have to play well for us to win. He knows that. He's been playing well. He's been playing very well. Um, although I wasn't out there with him yesterday, I did see he's, he's got the elbow brace on, which worries me a bit. Um, but I think he's going to take it easy this week. He's not going to get out there. Maybe just going to hit the range once or twice, get some putts in. He's not really going to be playing, you know, competitive golf this week, week, which I like. Um, but then after that, we got Josh Gazetta, um, owner of Romeo and Juliet. Been a big pepper staple since this whole thing started. Um, He's been great. Actually, going into last year, he was the leading point getter for the career. Um, last year, he had a little down year, but Josh realizes now that he's playing better, he's getting a little tougher matchup. So, right. And that's what he's got this year. He's actually playing, um, you know, Coach Licata in the singles here on the final round, where, oh you know, usually I'm sparring with Licata, and, you know, but now Susie's up there, and he's ready. He's ready. He's been playing a lot of golf. He's been playing good golf. Um, so we're excited about that. We're looking for a big year out of him. Um, and then I think really our downfall last year was, um, especially leading going into singles, you know, the final matches, we have a young team. Um, we had three rookies last year in the pepper, Scott Rogers, Justin Wainwright, and, um, oh, I 
Corey? Corey. Corey, my... I love that um, you forgot Corey. <laughs> Corey's been playing a hell of a lot of golf. I haven't played once with Corey this year, though. Um, but I know he's been playing a lot with sticks. Um, Corey's been getting a lot better. Um, Scott Rogers actually just had his club stolen a couple weeks ago, but we were able to get him a new bag, new irons, new driver, new putter. He's yeah, they're sitting in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> he's ready to go. He's excited. Um, and Justin Wainwright's been playing a lot of golf out at Glen Oak with um, Steve Barkowski. Been getting a lot of lessons. So um, our team's taking it a lot more serious in year two with these younger guys. So I'm excited to see the jump they all make in this year. You know, looking at the Lions, you guys have done a really good job of promoting the tournament. Uh, really good marketing team you got there. Really good graphics. Uh, just a couple of my picks, and you guys can just kind of piggyback off what you say. I'm not going to get into day two because the Irish flu can sometimes come around there Saturday, uh, you know, next Saturday night. I've heard that. And, you know, especially the Irishmen. Uh, I think it's going to hit Team Cahill harder than Team Licata. I think <laughs> Team Licata did a better do- job of drafting more responsible guys that can really dive into today uh today two with their head on straight uh with that being said a couple locks here day one matchup Lakata and DeSabio is an absolute lock over Gazetta and Martin you can put the mortgage <laughs> on that okay going down the list here Spina and Mosier over Cahill and Rogers absolute lock Whoa. it should be minus 240 <laughs> let's move down I don't know you know I do like the Abbott Wainwright group over Briandi and Sudik, but that's just because I don't know much about Briandi and Sudik. Okay, I, I know Abbott's going to come to play day one. Okay, moving down the line, I'm not going to I'm not going to bore you with day two picks because of what I said earlier. Okay, this is a great matchup: Abbott and Cahill against Briandi and Lakata. I'm going to slide Abbott and Cahill here, make things interesting. Mike, I'm going to call you out. I mean. I'm extremely proud of, of the progress you've made since since you tore up your knee in the wintertime and you've been playing really good golf. Uh, you know, end of day one, getting into day two, there's questions. I'm just going to say it. There's questions. Okay, moving I, 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 I want you to respond to that those questions, Mike. I'm, I'm glad he asked. You know, I think that that no matter how this tournament plays out, there's an important footnote uh, that, that's being ignored, and that's I had major reconstructive knee surgery a, a couple months ago. And, and my, my medical team, we brought in some of the best doctors in the world. And, and, and I told, I, we got together and I said, shoot me straight. What are the chances I'll walk again? You know, forget <laughs> playing golf. There, there, there was a time where they didn't know if I'd ever walk again. So in just a couple short months to be out swinging it and, and you know, maybe hitting it, maybe hitting it 10 or 15 less yards uh, distance wise, but I'm hacking it around and, and able to compete. So, you know, I think absolutely no question. Will there be, Will there be some tightness or soreness or, or uneasiness trying to go back-to-back on, on, a, on a bum wheel? Sure, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to let it be an excuse. I think I've been playing, you know, as good a golf as I've played in, in, in years past, and, and uh, you know, I don't want that to be a unfortunate uh, excuse for me. But, but you're right. You know, there's certainly you look at Tiger playing first round back at Memorial this weekend and, and you know, just – showed some great things but never was really able to put it together so sure i think that i think that's a fair question that'll come into the to the betting aspect of of this tournament i think you know maybe day two i'm not getting a lot of bets on me but uh you know i think i've been in that situation before and and excited for it and like and that's the noon tea time moving down to the 12 10 slot and here's my dog of the day it's a slight dog it's Mosier and DeSabio. 
it's over. Gazetta and Rogers, and I think Josh will play good golf, but I, I think Scott's an absolute wild card here. So, you know, I, I'm going to lean towards the dog there. And then in a really, really good matchup uh, to, to close the day, Spina and Sudik against Martin and Wainwright. I think it's going to be closer than the odds indicate. I think that's going to be a really tight match. I think Martin will really come to play on day one, especially towards the back end. And Spina doing a little bit of traveling, coming in from Pittsburgh. Could be wearing out by the end of that. I think it's going to be closer than the odds indicate. Sure. Pat, go ahead. Comment on that one. Yeah, you know, um, I've actually been keeping tabs on Spina. Um, <laughs> he's actually struggling this year. Um, Perfect. He's lost his driver. He can't get off a tee. Um, and I think our group can really, can really, uh, you know, really, I think that's really going to benefit us. Um Spina has been great year in and year out for them. Um, he's got a kid on the way. Congratulations, Lou. Um, we're expecting a little baby Spina. Going to be playing in the junior pepper soon, I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> end of August, they're due. So, uh, you know, Spina's mind is elsewhere right now, and rightfully so. Um, so I do think if we have a chance to exploit Spina, it's going to be this year with the long drive in. He's going to arrive late Friday. Um, you know, his sleeping arrangements are still being made. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not in the same situation he was last year with us. So uh, I do think... I do think if we have a year to exploit him, this is the year for sure. I think it's going to be really close after day one, which is going to make for a really good day two. Can you can you one more time run down the format? I know that we end with singles. What is it before that? Yeah, so the front nine is scramble, which is just two people. So it'll be scramble, and it's and we're playing match play. So, you know, it's me and Rogers in the first round. Um, we both hit our tee shots. Whatever shot is a better shot, we both grab our balls and play from that one. Um, and so on and so forth through the first nine holes. Um, and also in match play, you know, if myself and Rogers take a six and the other team takes a three, they don't go up three strokes. They just beat us by one hole. Got so it. they only go up one. So it really, you know, it, it keeps the matches a lot closer than if you play stroke play. Um, after scramble, we go to alternate shot. Um, so use myself and Abbott for an example against Lakata and Briandi. Uh, you know, Abbott's going to tee off on ten. I hit the second shot with the exact same ball from wherever Abbott hit it. He hits the third, so on and so forth. Um, same strat same uh, you know layout though. It's also match play. This is all match play. Um, third round is best ball, um, and I believe I'm with Martin on the third round early. Uh, myself and Martin both play the hole out. Um, if Martin takes a four and I take a six, our team got a four. Uh, so you take the best score on the got hole, it. and then singles, just head to head. Let's go to war. Let's see what we got. Yep. Six points left to end the tournament, and that's how it's done. Hey, Pat. Yeah. Let me tell you something about Corey Martin. Uh, I played with him a ton, not super recently, but a ton earlier in this year. You're going to love him on day two. I think he's going to thrive in an alternate shot setting, and I think you're, when it gets to crunch time, he can he can really elevate his game. You know, Corey's that person that can elevate everyone else's game, you know. Um, he picks everyone up. Everyone loves playing with him. Um, he's a great addition to the team. Everyone's attitude has changed since he's been here. I'm really excited to, to watch him take the leap in year two here. And talking about Corey, and you got some really good players, Cahill, and I'm starting to really fall in love with your team as I'm looking more at it. And, Mike, the one thing that you really like to do and one thing that you're really good at is the psychological warfare. No, it doesn't sound like Mike. So talk about some things that might be said on the course or some things that you might do because there's nobody that knows the other person's weakness better and, and exactly what to say at exactly the right time. 
Talk about some things that you might have in store this week, or is it all secret? Yeah, no, you know, I, I'd be I'd be happy to talk a little bit about what goes into it. Um, you know, two quick stories to, to which kind of answer your question. Um, number one is a funny story with Justin Wainwright, like Pat said, uh, rookie, new to the pepper last year, first year, opening round up at Cherry Hill up in uh, up in Fort Erie on the Canada side. Beautiful course, our home track last year. So he's nervous and and up on the tee. And I forget which which match it was day one, but I was pitted against him in a in a you know doubles match, and I never said anything the whole nine holes. And and so we get back to um, up up to Niagara Falls afterwards, and he was like shook. He just said, "I can't believe you weren't talking shit. You weren't saying anything to me, you know." And so I think sometimes the the reputation precedes itself, and you know guys are waiting for me to throw jabs at them, and then and then. Sometimes they're wondering why I'm not. So I think that goes, you know, a, a little bit into it. Um, but I made a mistake my first two years, Buckets. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, 0-2 our first two years, at 1-1 one one by points. But, uh, you know, they retained both cups. And, and that's when I was trying to do too much. When you look down the roster at what I got, I mean, we just got absolute dogs. I mean, we're going to get nitty and gritty. If this was a hockey game, we'd be living in the corners, you know, and uh, – and so I think the the best thing I could do as a captain of when you look at the talent I have is stay the heck out of the way. You know, I think we just, I got to stay the heck out of the way and let Lou be Lou and Frank be Frank and Chad be Chad and, and all these guys, let them be themselves. And I think if we, if I can just stay out of the way Sunday afternoon, they're going to be handing me a trophy. And Pat, final question for you. You go in as the underdog, I believe, if I read the betting lines, correct? So what what are your thoughts as the team captain, knowing you're the betting underdog, what do you say to your team, and how do you think playing at Sheridan as opposed to up in Canada helps or hurts your team? Um, you know, I think it really helps it. Um, I think, uh, you know, Buckets touched on this earlier. You know, I do have a team of guys who, who maybe like to, to hit the bottle a little too heavy. Um, <laughs> last year, Scott Rogers was riding a bull for six hours at a bar, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, we don't have that here. You know, we're coming to my house after. We're going to do a little cookout. You two are more than welcome. We'd love to have you. Oh, I might have to um, do some post. Actually, Romeo and Juliet's yeah. is sponsoring it. We're doing all pepper dishes. We're doing stuffed pepper pizza, stuffed peppers, stuffed bell peppers, hot pepper dip, all that stuff to stay with the theme of the pepper. Um, you guys are more than welcome. Like I said, we'll probably be here around 3 p.m. Um, but, but you know, you know, we're used to being the underdog. I think we've been the underdog three years in a row. So we relish it. These guys love it. Um, I just tell them go out there and have fun and, and let it take care of itself, and uh, you know it usually does. So, Mike, your final thoughts before Buckets and I give our actually Buckets gave his predictions, but before I give my prediction. Yeah, I think uh, you know I think with your listenership and, and what we've been able to do on Twitter, we have a unique year here where there is you know relatively speaking for a bunch of old washed up guys a little bit of buzz created around this thing, and I think. You know, I think with your help, and, and we can harness that, and, and let's see what the pepper is three years from now. You know, I think that we're able to evolve and change. I'd love to see a junior pepper one day. I'd love to see a senior pepper one day. Um, you know, and, and I think we got to get more guys in, make it more inclusive, and, and 
and let's build this thing. And, and, and I think that's where I kind of see the pepper going. But, uh, yeah, excited and ready for this weekend. So I'd like to see who you're picking. My final prediction, and I think it's going to be a – I think it's actually going to be the closest pepper that there has ever been. I'm going to go – it's going to go down to the end. I, I got Team Lakata just by a hair, and I think it's going to be a fun finish. You know what? Create some controversy yeah, there. I, I, again, I've said, <laughs> it, I've said this on record before. I hate picking Corey Martin to win because I don't think he'll be able to walk into a room. His head will be so big if he does one more good thing in golf <laughs> this summer. But I think that there's some questions on Team Lakata. There's no way that Baby Speen is not going to be on Lou's mind when he's up at the tee. You know what? I mean, his his pregnant wife is back home, and he's out there golfing. Says a lot about his character. And I saw Frank Briandy a couple weeks ago walk hobbling around with a knee brace. People are wondering, does he still have it? And you got, I mean, that when it's just about the top dogs. Jim Abbott. You know, people have been coming at his past performances. I heard it last week at at Chad's birthday, and. I think he's going to step it up. I think that Swizz might. You know what? I hope everyone enjoys that pizza because I think we might see a Jordan flu game type scenario where Team Lakata gets fed <laughs> a certain type of pizza that night. And I think Rogers is ready to answer the bell. And I think everyone's going to step up. I got Team Lakata in the up, or excuse me, Team Cahill in the upset. I think you had it right the first time. <laughs> no. uh, let me tell you one thing. I, you know, I, I I appreciate you having us on, but I can't let you dog my man Spina like that. I got it on record that if he wins this year, the baby's name is going to be Pepper. That's what I heard. So, you know, no, nothing like an absolute exclamation point to welcome baby Pepper Spina. Okay, well, Pepper. I, I hope that's true. I hope – you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing some Spina sharpened this weekend. So I wish both of you the best of luck. Hopefully we'll be able to see you this weekend and get some – Maybe during interviews and po- definitely post. So we we are definitely going to have you on next Monday to discuss the results. And uh, really, best of luck to both I'm of gonna you. I'm going to say uh, pepper spina sounds like a good Spanish marinade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Hey, thanks, guys. Alrighty then. Another big thanks to Ace Vitrano for joining us again for our hole-in-one with Ace segment. Great insight on the Memorial Tournament. Looking forward to seeing how his predictions pan out this upcoming weekend and obviously a huge thank you to both pat cahill and michael cotta the captains of the pepper tournament this weekend can't wait to see how that plays out can't wait to talk to them next monday right now we're going to send it over to ben wagner play-by-play voice of the toronto blue jays followed by a quick trivia segment here we go it's the last inning our guys are winning dave's put down a smoker a strike you got no doubt what do you want let's play ball Very pleased to welcome on former Buffalo Bison play-by-play announcer and current Toronto Blue Jays play-by-play announcer, Ben Wagner. Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben. Buckets here. I I read that you grew up in Indiana and that you're a Cubs fan. I got to ask you, was baseball always your number one sport growing up, and did you always kind of have dreams of working in sports one day? A multi-layered question with multi-layers of the answer. I, you know, as a kid, I was just uh, basically the all-American boy. If it was football season, you know, I really loved diving 
driving in and watching games on Saturday and Sunday. If it's baseball season, I was all in trying to consume as many games as possible. And if it was basketball season, you couldn't tear me away from college basketball. You know, so um, to say that I was a Cubs fan, I, I guess my greatest baseball influence comes from watching the Cubs. And in the afternoon growing up, the Cubs played so many day games when they were at home. Uh, so it was like my brother and I were rolling off the school bus and the Cubs were already, you know, <laughs> playing at Wrigley Field. And that was on the television. And then my brother, just because, of course, he had to be different. He wanted to be a White Sox fan. So we were fighting over the remote at six or seven o'clock every night trying to figure out, you know, if we were going to watch the White Sox games or, you know, the Superstations were going crazy at that time. And we could get Atlanta's uh, TBS. So, you know, we we had such a such an incredible influence of sports in our house. Um, and then, you know, you, you go to the backyard and you try to mimic all these guys in the plays that you just watched on television. Um, so, uh, you know, but baseball for me was obviously the longest sport. It's the, the sport that I love watching on television. I love listening to on radio and then I wanted to play, uh, but reality set in about 15 or 16 years old. And, um, and, you know, I was, I was starting to have other interests. And that, uh, that then led me to combining my passion for baseball and, and the love of what, what I was falling into with, with radio and broadcasting and trying to figure out what kind of medium I thought would be best for my future. So it was, um, it was definitely a combination of baseball, the love of it, and then going to college and getting a lot of positive feedback from the broadcast that I was part of as a baseball guy. And then a couple of strokes of luck, you know, worked in my way and kind of got me into professional baseball. Yeah. As you said, you graduated, I read in 2003 and, and by 04, you were working as a play-by-play announcer and director of media for the class, a Lakewood blue claws. That's in New Jersey. They're the single a affiliate of the Philadelphia Phillies. Talk about what that experience was like. Uh, it's, it's incredible. You know, I was really fortunate. Um, even before, you know, the end of that semester, I went down to the baseball winter meetings in new Orleans and I interviewed for a handful of jobs to get into professional baseball. And I thought, you know, I, I wanted to be the voice of the team. I, and I knew I wasn't going to, you know, just stroll into Bush stadium and be the voice of the Cardinals. You know, I understand that there was a process to, to do and elevate, through practice, through discipline, to work your way up the, the ladder in markets, and whether that's local TV, local radio, or professional sports. And I got some good career advice really early on, you know, that, that said get into minor league baseball and not only call a lot of innings, so you get comfortable on the air with your broadcasts. And baseball is a different beast than the other because of the pace of the game or lack of pace of the game. Uh, you have to find this this comfortability and, and trust yourself on the air. So taking that and my desire to be the voice of a team, you know, baseball was going to work out. But the other layer of this is minor league baseball allows you to have a well-rounded resume. And especially in the lower levels where you could have your job, you know, on the business card it says broadcaster. Yippee! Well, that also means that you're going to be sweeping aisles, changing out trash cans because you had a night <laughs> yeah. game and then there's a kid's day game at 1030 with the first pitch. And Oh, by the way, you got to do game notes, update the website, um, have a staff meeting, 
there's a radio station that's coming in that morning. You know, you've got to be there to welcome them, help them with setup, and make sure their pop-up tent doesn't blow away. And, you know, there's a, there's a list of about 30 things every day that you have to do. And the last thing on that list, in, the, in terms of your boss's eyes, especially in the minor leagues at the lower levels, uh, the last thing that they care about is plugging in the radio equipment. While it's number one priority for me, uh, it's not the priority for the organization. Um, you know, so there were some hurdles. <laughs> there were some hurdles there. But after you get your sea legs and get rolling, um, you, you know, it, it was uh, it was an incredible learning experience. And if anything has resonated for me out of those first couple of years and, um, and in the third you know, I had pretty good confidence of where I was at in terms of doing my job and my ability on the air too. But uh, out of that was a foundation and so many teaching tools and experiential learning along the way uh, that has helped me even go through this wild time that we're living in. And, uh, you know, actually recently I just called one of my old bosses and I, and he has gone on to bigger and better things too. Uh, I recently reached out to one of my former bosses and I said, you know, things that you said and I found so annoying in my early <laughs> my early stages of the career have resonated with me more in the last four or five months than I think at any point in my career. And and that goes to things that I was asked by my network in this layoff, whether it's communicating with fans, whether it's communicating with or, like community organizations and outreach or even these little perky things that I've been asked to do on behalf of corporate sponsors, the way that I learned to do the job from Lakewood and with my time with the blue claws, uh, that was kind of a road that got cut. Um, you know, that still kind of guides me to this day. You kind of answered my question there at the end. I'm sure the experience in single a baseball has just made you so much more grateful that everything you have gone on to do and, uh, it's just kind of it, – it's such an intriguing answer, and, and, like, your career and broadcaster's career sometimes can mirror the career of players doing their own process in the minor leagues and working their way up for what they get. You go on to Buffalo um, in, I believe, 2007. How did everything materialize for you getting hired with the Bisons? Well, it was uh, wild, much like my Blue Jays experience. But in terms of the baseball calendar, you know, many front offices or organizations like to have things set up as early as they can after the calendar turns to get ready for opening day, which in the minor leagues is usually somewhere in early April. Uh, in the major leagues and in communications, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. And Jim Rosenhouse was in that hurry up and wait mode with the Cleveland Indians. Cleveland wasn't in a rush to hire somebody until really they had to, they had to nail down their spring training broadcast. So look at the calendar when spring training start mid February. Okay. Well, Jimmy was hired right before the broadcast started out in Arizona and you know, do the math. Well, you, you, you turn in your two weeks and then there's a process for hiring and then this, that, and the other. So um, I found out about the same time frame mid mid February while I was calling college basketball and working in Lakewood uh, that this job in Buffalo was going to open up. And, you know, I looked at the calendar and I said, Oh man, you know, you, you think about, can I, can I make this move so close to the season and be ready to go? Uh, you take a step back and you got to look at it from a personal standpoint, you know, what's the best for me? What was the best for me and 
at, at that time, geez, like I was just married. You know, we were less than six months married. Um, and I thought this is, this is a huge opportunity for my career. It is a flagship franchise for minor league baseball, outstanding ownership, a tremendous sports market, um, you know, that not only could afford me a great opportunity to be the voice of a triple A team, but it might have other opportunities in broadcasting, you know, that continue to build my resume. Mm-hmm. And I said, why would I not apply for this job? And why would I not go gangbusters after this job in Buffalo? And um, so, you know, I applied and it, it works just like any other job, guys. You know, like you apply, you send your resume, you, you apply with, you know, your credentials. So uh, you send a tape or a resume or a CD along in the same packet uh, or email and and you hope and you wait. And, you know, I was I was appreciative enough to, although an accelerated process uh, for the people at the Bison's office, uh, I went through three rounds of interviews and whittled down. And at the end of the day, they said, hey, uh, why don't you come up to Buffalo? And I, I remember March 6th, I was standing in Raleigh, North Carolina in a hotel getting ready to call a college basketball game uh, when Mike Butchkowski rang my phone and said, why don't you shuffle up here? And uh, I, I was I was forever and will be forever indebted. Uh, and grateful for that opportunity. That's awesome. And before I talk to you about your experience in Buffalo, I, I guess I'm just maybe confused or you'll have the answer for me, but you talk about the parent club hiring you. How does it work with broadcasting? So are you technically employed by, say, the Cleveland Indians when you were hired in 07, or are you just strictly an employee of the Bisons? It depends. You know, it really depends. Um, and you have to look at it from who owns what team, and how you're employed. So in the major leagues, we've got broadcasters both on TV and radio that are employed by networks or they're club employees, which means they're, they're employees of the Toronto Blue Jays, Seattle Mariners, whatever. Uh, in, in my case specifically, and again, you know, it's weird because Rogers Communications or Rogers owns both the Blue Jays, the Rogers Center and Sportsnet, uh, but I'm technically an employee of Rogers Sports Media and Sportsnet, which is the Fan 590, the radio station, which is the flagship. Um, but I, you know, I know a ton of guys that ha- have similar situation to me, or work for a radio station or a media company, or they work for the, the team. Jim Rosenhaus works for the team, so he's a Cleveland Indian employee. Um, in the minor leagues, there are teams that own minor league teams, like Atlanta, for example. The Atlanta Braves own the Gwinnett Braves. They're their own running organization, but their paycheck comes from Atlanta. All of their all of their uh, emails are at Braves.com, for example, right? So uh, in most cases, though, you are a club employee in the minors. You, you look at it like I'm a, I'm a Buffalo Bisons employee. Uh, we get many benefits in Buffalo, and, and it's, it's a, another just, which I didn't know at the time of applying for the job, but in Buffalo, you're also benefited by the Rich family owning Rich Products, which is a massive world organization and, and company, and extremely successful. So uh, we get, you know, we get benefits in our health insurance because we're kind of lumped in with the other baseball teams, but also Rich Products Corporation. So we get some some major benefits that way. When I listen to you, I, I go to a ton of Bison's games, and I'd like every any time I'd leave early, I'd always listen to you, and I'd listen to you just occasionally driving, and I always thought to myself, this guy, I don't think he's going to be here long. I always thought you were just really incredible um, at your job, and 
working with Duke McGuire and Pat Malacaro at times, you, were, you guys just really did a great job. I want to ask you, off the field and outside of your job, maybe how you enjoyed living in Buffalo, maybe where you lived in western New York and just maybe some certain places you and your wife enjoyed going to. What did you think of the, the place, western New York? Well, I, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, w- one of the things for me in the broadcast in, in Buffalo especially after I kind of, you know, like felt comfortable, uh, felt comfortable at 20, I think it was 25 or 20, no, I was 26 when I moved to Buffalo. You know, I was still trying to figure out a lot of things about life. I, I was obviously still trying to find my way on the air. So to hear, hear that, that's great. Um, you know, and with that too, in the early stages in Buffalo, I had an opportunity to interview for my first major league job. And while it didn't work out, it gave me a ton of confidence in what I was doing on the air in Buffalo with support of the front office at that time to try to make our broadcast sound as major league as possible. And I knew for that to be accomplished, I had to get my button gear and, and try to pull off the best broadcast and try to do things different, right? You know, like Mike the dugout and have a batter's mic behind home plate. Just these, these things that I think uh, for a market that was so ready to have major league baseball in its own right, um, you know, and, and also let's be honest, Pete Weber and Jim Rosenhouse, they raised the level of what it's like to be a Bison's broadcaster and the, the opportunity to work with Duke McGuire, somebody that is passionate about the game of baseball, specifically Western New York, his connection going back to the late seventies to the Bison's um, that needed to resonate out of our broadcast, just to have that connection with our, with our listeners. Um, you, you know, so it's definitely something that Pat, I think, has definitely taken hold of and, and taken the ball and run with it. Um, you know, so it definitely it, it's 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 a labor of love for what we're doing in that broadcast booth during the games. Uh, now, in terms of Western New York, you know, I didn't know I, I didn't know if we were going to be there. Like I said, I, I had an opportunity to interview for my first major league job shortly after moving to Buffalo with that uh, with that AAA reel. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to be there uh, another year or another 20 years, um, but we made Western New York home. And Buffalo, in the first couple of years that I moved there, changed so much, mm-hmm. and specifically for the better in downtown Buffalo. And, I, you know, when I first arrived in Buffalo, you know, the odd had this ugly gaping hole in it. Yep. You know, and downtown Buffalo shut down at five o'clock unless there was a game or a big event. It just was not that inviting. The last five years living in Buffalo, I loved living in Buffalo from start to finish. Um, but downtown Buffalo definitely picked up a different vibe for for me and Megan, you know, while while our time there was winding down. Uh, Buffalo for me also was the longest place that I ever had residency in a single in a single dwelling Uh, I moved when I was a kid Uh, I moved obviously early in my career I moved around in college in different places to live but I had no deeper roots than western New York and and the home that we had in Lancaster and um, I you know I'm sitting here in Toronto in a condo right now and just being back this close to Buffalo makes me want to go to the Buffalo brew pub. Uh, it makes me want to, you know, one of the, one of the great places too, that we found to, to ease in Williamsville, it's called share. 
yeah. that's that's on my list of places to go to. Um, there's a handful in South Buffalo that I love to go to. Uh, it seemed like every time I was turning around those last couple of years in, in downtown Buffalo, I was finding new places to eat or a new coffee house would pop up. Um, and that's another little passion of mine too is, is coffee. So, you know, going to Tipico um, is a great coffee place. There were a couple of um, like Remedy House is another one that I really enjoy. Uh, you know, Public Espresso had their downtown flagship mm-hmm. just open up in my last couple of years being in Buffalo. Um, you know, so those were a couple of couple of spots. Man, you, you I never the, saw... the list of places to eat and drink is really long yeah. for me in Western New York. And you actually never saw the Labatt Brew House, which just opened right next to the arena. That was probably just after you, you left. Uh, actually, you know, my first off season after getting the Blue Jays gig, uh, we kept we had our house in Western New York. Um, I was going to ask for, for a number of reasons because I was trying to figure out where was the best spot for us to live, whether it's Canada, whether it's stay in Western New York, whether it's move else, elsewhere. Um, so we actually had the house, you know, through that 2018 season, and then just decided to sell it in that off season and sold it in early 2019. So um, one of the one of those winter stops was actually at the brew house next door, but um, you, you know. I think I had only one and one and only trip uh, to the Labatt Blue House, Brew House right next door to the arena. So you're living in Toronto full time then now? No, actually splitting um, baseball season, whatever baseball season looks like this year and, and in years to come. Uh, we'll be here in Toronto, and then my my full time residency is in the state of Florida. Okay, interesting. So let's let's talk about the season that you just mentioned. So. Before we get into the actual Blue Jays, obviously this season is going to be quite different. We're we're trying to jam a lot of games into not a lot of time. So what are your overall thoughts on the shortened season as a whole? Do you think we're we're rushing back? Do you think they should have just called it or was that not a possibility with, you know, the the way the fans are reacting over the negotiations between the owners and players as a whole? And do you think That's a loaded question. Sorry, and then there's one more there's one more part to it. Do you think this World Series will be looked at with an asterisk since if you look at it, you know, baseball thrives on being a marathon. This is a sprint. They're only playing about 37% of their games. This would be like a 30-game NHL season or a six-game NFL season. So just your overall thoughts on the season before we get with the Blue Jays. Well, I think uh, a lot of countries in the United States is no exception, and specifically a handful of states have been way too aggressive in their reopening uh, procedures. Um, And now, more than ever, those states or regions, depending on how you want to look at the map, they're paying the price. And I was in the thick of it when – late May, let's call it, right before Memorial Day, and the governor of Florida was, you know, standing at the pulpit with his hands wide open saying, come on down, we're open for business. Yeah, ridiculous. I said, this is this is a bad, bad situation. <laughs> and then you could just see the trickle start and then the hose wide open in the middle of June. And just, I mean, it's just so stupid. Yep. Um, go right back to that weekend. What did he do? He opened the beaches. He opened the bars and restaurants. And through June, the rollout continued. And then guess what? Around 4th of July, numbers are climbing rapidly. And then 4th of July numbers, now that we're seeing here as we chat on 
you know, July 16th, uh, they're experiencing record numbers again, five-digit totals for an individual state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know testing has gone up, but look at the the the, the positive rate. And here we go on a long, rambling, COVID-heavy question oh, on what, what's fine. right, what's wrong. But it's just it's just terrible. But sports plays into it, right? Sports plays into it. You've got you've got governors and, and agencies and businesses that want to drive the economy and have this going on. Um, as part of it, just so some normalcy feels, and baseball is going to be part of that normalcy where it is going to still continue every day once we get this baby off the ground. And that is important where you can just, you know, flip on the radio or have the ball game going in the background on television. Um, I think baseball is trying to do it as best as possible. They stumbled out of the gate, which is just another just total fumble for them not to have testing protocols lined up and guaranteed that they could handle intake of 3000 individuals. Um, Because remember, you know, every camp has 60 plus players in it. You're talking at minimum a hundred employees from the front office. So that's almost 300 individual tests that you're doing every other day for each franchise. You know, the math gets wild in a hurry. Um, So for major league baseball, not to help, and that didn't help the Blue Jays either, uh, to have it really. It's just it's an unbelievable undertaking. Uh, it is aggressive. I think baseball knew it would have its stumbling blocks along mm-hmm. the way, but I think they have built they have built a scenario where they hope to just power through the window of 60 games in 67 days, get to the playoffs, and, and then move on. One thing, though, that will ring true uh, from a player perspective and as ugly as it got between the Players Association and, and, the, and the owners in this, once the, once the green light goes on or the launch button of this season is ready to go, you are going to see guys flip the switch in, a, in terms of a competitive nature. And I know it's going to be a win sprint. Absolutely. I think guys are going to not be ready in terms of their body and conditioning uh, because of what they've been asked to do on an accelerated standpoint with their training and tune up to get ready for this. So there again, will be some, some glitches, but the season overall and getting to the postseason and the world series, they're going to do it because they want to win and they want to compete. Right. So I don't think baseball will ever think about putting an asterisk next to a champion when it's time to crown them, but it is a footnote, you know, a shortened COVID season, but, um, but with the balance, and especially with what the two Eastern divisions look like, mm-hmm. holy smokes, nobody deserves an asterisk if you're able to survive the mm-hmm. East in either the National League or the American League, get through this thing, and hoist a championship. That's a good point. And have you talked to any players about what they think about all these social distancing rules and you know their overall thoughts on the, the protocols moving forward? Yeah, we talk, we talk a lot to the players. Um, the Blue Jays assist with that. We, we see one or two guys every day. Uh, from a Blue Jay perspective, and very early on, the magnitude of this situation hit within the walls of the clubhouse. You had guys that were expecting their first babies in the coming months, and I'm going back, saying the coming months, going back to mid-March when, right. the, when sports went on pause. Uh, you had individuals in that room that had children with some setbacks early in their life. You had a manager standing in front of that room trying to relay the magnitude of what was happening with, with what could happen, even before we understood to the extent of what we know about the virus now. 
Uh, but Charlie Montoyo has a son that had endured an incredible, incredible peril early in his life with multiple surgeries, heart defects, and, you know, is still on a very, very sensitive track on how he operates his life. You know, so Charlie's there relaying that in front of wide-eyed, you know, 25, 21-year-olds um, in, in the Major League Clubhouse. So the gravity of the situation hit home very, very early. And then as we learned what the government was going to crack down from a Canadian standpoint, and even if the Blue Jays would be allowed across the border, uh, the, the Blue Jays are very, very aware. They're very, very sensitive of what it will take for them to be allowed to compete in this country, what it will be allowed from a civic duty, to be a, a professional athlete in this country. And to this point, while there are some restrictions and there are lots of sacrifices that are being asked of them, and it's a situation that I am definitely not an envy of because of what is being asked for them in a season that is unlike any other, their situation is unlike anybody else to go through it. Um, if they are approved in the 30 days that they'll be asked to play here in Toronto, uh, they're going to try to make the most of it but they are going to definitely adhere by everything that's put in place for their safety and the Canadian citizen's safety. So that has been settled, correct? They they will not be playing in Tampa Bay or Buffalo. They will be playing their home games in Toronto? Uh, no. That, okay. So there's two different scenarios that go out with where the Blue Jays are right now. And as we sit here on a late Thursday morning, the government – the federal government in Canada is looking at the proposed plan for the season with the Blue Jays. They've already approved what summer camp will be allowed to do. And that is the, that is now the modified quarantine bubble that the Blue Jays are operating right. in between the hotel connected to Rogers center and what's happening in terms of a comp competitive standpoint at Rogers center with, with the Blue Jays, but they have not been given the thumbs up uh, whether or not they are allowed to play in Toronto or find another home. Interesting. Okay, so well, let's move on to the actual team because I—I'll be honest—it's a very interesting team, and I'm a—I'm a Mets fan, so I watched you know the team rebuild through the draft, and they—they um, they built the Mets chose to build their team through pitching, which obviously ended up being a very short window due to how frequent pitchers get hurt. So now they're stumbling around and whatnot, but the. Blue Jays went more of a Cubs route where they tried to do their best to build on position players. And last year, the, the big core of this organization of three former Major League sons, excuse me, former Major League player sons of Bo Bichette, Ka Kavin or Kavin, Biggio, and Vlad Guerrero Jr. all come up. Um, Bison's. Very, very entertaining. So how much, especially as a broadcaster, how much life did these three inject into the team and how much fun were they to watch? You can have a clubhouse in baseball of the most salty and grizzled veterans uh, on any phase of baseball in its history. You put a couple of guys that have promise, high ceilings, electric ability, they can change the, the tenor in the clubhouse. Awesome. doesn't matter where you're at. You're in the 50s, you're in the 70s, you're in the 80s to the, to the 2000s. You plant a couple of those young guys into a clubhouse, they change the entire – energy around that ball club and you know the, the what's orchestrated through a day the blue jays have an entire clubhouse of these guys playing with their hair on fire thinking that they are invincible and that is what really struck 
in, in the change from 2018 to 2019 last year with the influx of not only the three, but the four guys, um, you look at, and I'll, I'll do them in the order that they arrived, right? right. So Lourdes Goriel Jr. was already here. He had some bouts with injuries and, you know, the position change where he went down to Buffalo in the middle of April, completely retooled himself, and now is looking like the everyday left fielder for the Toronto Blue Jays. Then you've got Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up, and then you had Kevin Biggio come up, and then Bo Bichette, the final piece of this, not only the three-headed trifecta, uh, of the big prospects for the Blue Jays, but I, I look at the four of them because they're young, they're extremely talented, and they're still trying to figure out who they're going to be as, as major leaguers. It is a joy to cover a clubhouse like this. Um, and they're great people, and they're great to interact with, and they just make they make life better, honestly, from a selfish standpoint. Uh, and others, uh, you know, I mean, Ken Giles is a great veteran. He's had this incredible red of success, but, you know, so his tentacles are kind of reaching out in the atmosphere of, the, you know, Travis Shaw is there too, some of these veteran guys. Um, but it's a, it's a really comfortable place to work um, when that can't be said for every clubhouse that broadcasters or people in the media have to go into across the, across the game. Right, and you mentioned uh, they brought in Travis Shaw, hoping he'd bounce back to the power hitter he was a couple of years ago in Milwaukee. They went out and signed Ray Yu to a huge deal, bringing him over from the Dodgers. But they did lose Justin Smoke, and as much as I love their now their new first baseman, you know former Bison Rowdy Telez, just the name. Um, how much do you think that the loss of Justin Smoke will affect this team? Well, it's going to affect him big time with the glove. Uh, you know, Justin, just in the last couple of years has, was, you know, his, his body failed him a little bit with some injuries and they were, they were long, you know, the, it was a long list of injuries, um, and nothing, they, they came from playing hard, honestly. Right. So, uh, are you going to miss, are you going to miss 25 home runs? Yeah. But Rowdy hit 21 in limited time last sure. year, you know? So I think, I think you can find ways to plug the gap in terms of offensive production, but Smokey, even from both sides of the plate, just wasn't driving the ball, putting it in play uh, the last year. When he was when he signed a major league deal, to be honest with you, I was kind of stunned because a lot of the a lot of the analytical guys had given up on mm -hmm. Justin Smoke. I thought he was going to end up being a non roster invitee. So good on the Brewers, good on Smokey, you know, for, for getting paid. But the Blue Jays did this with a plan and it's no surprise that you know, a big bat like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. ends up at first base and, and moving across the diamond. When they went out, and yes, they had Travis Shaw in their sights. Uh, they've got Rowdy Telez up there. They've got versatility with Kevin Biggio. They can go over there and play first base. Um, Brandon Drury's played time at first base. Billy McKinney has played time at first base. Now, those aren't everyday first basemen. Right. Uh, and, you know, a couple of those guys don't have the, the pop that even Justin Smoke has, but the Blue Jays had backup plans, you know, to balance out that lineup. And we mentioned Rayu and Ken Giles, and they also went out and signed Tanner Rourke. But if you look up and down their pitching staff, not a lot of, you know, league-wide names or guys with a lot of pedigree, and I feel like that's going to be super important in a shortened season like this. So, what are the realistic? You can be actually be as optimistic or as realistic as you want. What are your expectations of this Blue Jays team? Because 
with such a shortened season, it could be a team coming out of nowhere. I've said for a little bit, like the Tampa Bay Rays, I could see coming out of nowhere where they can start stunning people, or the Cincinnati Reds. It could be a team without the pedigree of the Yankees or the Astros or a team that's built for the long haul in the past. With this shortened season, it could be an up-and-coming team. So what are your expectations of the Blue Jays this year? Well, the, uh, let's go back and talk about the pitching rotation. Um, you know, they made uh, they made an unbelievable commitment in years and in money to Hinjin Ryu. And that is definitely a guy that they hope can even come close to replicating what he did last year in the senior circuit with L.A. That's going to be a win-win for the Blue Jays and win-win for baseball. But, he, you know, he's playing in the big boy league now. Um, yep. The national, the national league, as as competitive and as fun as it is to watch, you get into the Eastern divisions, things change and they change rapidly with the lineups that you're going to have to go through. Um, the Blue Jays desperately needed to improve their pitching, which they flipped the entire rotation. I'm going to I'm going to include Matt Shoemaker in that because we only saw five starts from him last year, but they have to stay healthy while doing it and wait then on this next wave of pitchers that are in kind of the wings with the Ryan Barucki and Trent Thornton, uh, TJ Zoik, Anthony Kay, you know, that next wave, Nate Pearson, uh, you know, that next wave of pitchers that'll kind of push. And this is where you hope you can gradually bring them in because of the veterans that are there. And these guys know how to go through the wars of a long season, let alone this, this season bitten a little bit by the injury bug with the oblique from Chase Anderson. But again, we're talking about an accelerated ramp up for all these dudes. And, you know, this is this part of it. Um, you just hope that you don't get overexposed. And that's where the Blue Jays were really overexposed last year, where they just didn't have guys that were ready to compete day in and day out at the major league level. Uh, and, you know, they were, they were definitely – Definitely exposed from an organization standpoint because they didn't have the depth to build around. But they went out, they addressed it, they got some innings eaters, they got guys that knew how to pitch, and hopefully that benefits them. And that's, for me, where it starts. Because the lineup, while there could be a sophomore slump for some of the young guys, you hope it's just not two or three of them going through the slump at the same time, especially within the confines of the schedule. Um, the, the Blue Jays season is also dependent on the five or six teams that, that becomes the juggernaut of the sixty game right. of the sixty game schedule. Philly, Atlanta. I think the New York Mets are going to be a really difficult team. Thank you. Um, the, the Yankees are the Yankees obviously are going to be able to compete because the guy that they're going to give the ball to on opening day mm-hmm. in in uh, Garrett Cole. Um, you know James Paxton is back. He's healthier. That's an incredible add. Jay Happ. He's still there in the crafty lefty. So. You know, that pitching staff, with now he got that lineup to deal with, that's a problem. Uh, you know, you people have said the Tampa Bay Rays sneaking up on people. You know, the Tampa Bay Rays have been good, and they've been grinding out the guys like the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees for the last couple of years. Yep. But I think they've taken it up a couple of clicks with their pitching staff now rested and healthy and deeper than they've had it the last couple of years. The Tampa Bay Rays are, are going to be reckoned with. And their pitching staff makes their lineup even better uh, because they, they don't make mistakes in their pitching. They just don't. Um, and, I, you know, I think with, with who they've got and how they have built that lineup and, and, and facilitated things, uh, I think the Tampa Bay Rays, if they don't win the division, it's going to be a close second wow. in the division for Tampa Bay. 
So, um, you know, at the end of the day with all of that, even with my, my, my best optimist glasses on, I think this is a great season for the Toronto Blue Jays if you're a handful of games above 500. So at, you know, 34 wins, that'd be great. All right, yeah, and you certainly have got us excited for baseball. Hopefully everything works out health-wise and we can get all the way through. should be very exciting. We want to thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, I think, I, you know, at least speaking for me, when the Mets aren't playing the Blue Jays, you've made a Blue Jays fan in me, so I'm excited about the core of this team moving forward. Hey, <clears throat> hey Ben, and one other thing. I want to say thank you so much for your time. You know, I know you're going to get very, very busy come the end of July, but one day we would love to do this again with you. Well, that sounds great. It's been a really good conversation. Appreciate uh, the longtime listenership back to Western New York, and obviously now I think even influencing a couple of more Blue Jay fans from what I'm hearing for you guys. So that's there's exciting. There's a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. It was great to join you. Absolutely. So hopefully enjoy the rest of the year, and good luck with everything. Thanks, guys. Alrighty then. Okay, and now the tables have turned. Dan tricked me last week with some Bills trivia, and now that we're on baseball, I'm going back after him. He has no idea what's coming. I'm going to ask him a question. He's going to have 60 seconds to answer. Now, when I started getting into baseball, I was 8th grade, 7th grader, but then I remember being a freshman at St. Joe's. Uh, Jose Reyes was just dominating the league. The Mets were very, very good that year. They won the NL East, and they got to the NLCS. This is 2006. So, Dan, I'm going to ask you, in one minute, I'm sure you remember that team well, how many players and pitchers, total players, can you name from that 2006 Mets roster? Oh, boy. Ready, set, go. Paul LaDuca. Uh, Ramon Castro. Carlos Delgado. Jose Valentin, Jose Reyes, David Wright, Cliff Floyd, Carlos Beltran, Sean Green, maybe, um, uh, Glavin, maybe, was Pedro on the team then? Pedro Martinez. I'll tell you, I love being on this side of it. 30 seconds left. Oliver Perez. Are we talking about the playoff team or the team in general? You could go playoff team. All right. Well, Xavier Nady played. Then he got traded for Roberto Hernandez. Dewaner Sanchez. Billy Wagner. Um, um, Mike Pelfrey, I don't think, was on the team yet, but I'll guess him. Um, how much time? Five seconds. I'm out. And time. Hello, hello, hello. Cole Coyle, how are you? <laughs> Bill, what's up, my man? Not much. So I just got Dan on the trivia. He did not know the question, and he just named Wow, Dan, come on, man. Well, no. He no, did, no, no, he, it's he, a, no, no. You'll understand this. You'll understand this. Oh, he okay. did a really good job. Um, so I'm going to ask you to beat him. i got to put my timer up. You're going to have 60 seconds. Okay, you're going to have 60 seconds to name as many Mets, including the playoff roster, as you can 
from the 2006 roster where they won the NL East and got to the NLCS. So it could be anybody that's ever, that played a, a single game for the Mets that year. Wow, okay. Ready, set, go. Uh, Jose Reyes, Andy Chavez, Xavier Nady, Julio Franco, Beltran, Delgado, give me Lasting's Millage for uh, 500, yeah. <laughs> Kaznat Sui, Paul LaDuca, Sean Green, uh, Johan Santana, Pedro Martinez. I don't know if Johan's right. He's got to be. Johan's wrong, but keep going. Uh, Tom Glavin, John Main, Billy Wagner, David Wright. 30 seconds. Uh, uh, Dwaner Sanchez. Uh, oh, man. I'm Oliver Perez, duh. Um, Heath Bell. <laughs> That's a good one. Chad Bradford. Uh, backup catcher Ramon Castro. The best walkout song of all time. Eight seconds. Aaron Heilman. El Duque. Uh, I think Jose Lima was on that team. Done. Dude, I, I that was un, you got oh, some man. great names. I think you got twenty three. I got seventeen. I'm super pissed at myself. I, there were some names I left off. I think you got twenty three. Oh, dude, I left out I left out Victor Zambrano, yeah, my favorite. Heilman we that piece of shit. Great. Heilman. Oh, I hated him. Yeah. That was really good, dude. That was really good. So we're gonna call Pat now and then no, we're uh, gonna Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll um He's gonna dominate this. Yeah, he, might, he might he might he might yeah, he's going to kill this. this I think you, got, you either got 22 or 23. I got to go back and check, but you definitely beat me. So we're going to call Pat, and then if you won, we'll call you back. If not, we'll just shoot you a text. Yeah, give me a call. Come on down. Hello? Yeah, we can tell you're on the beach. What? You can tell I'm on the beach? Oh, yeah. Do I got to move, or you can hear me? No, you're, no, you're, you're good, fine. You're good. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. I can go into the sky. I can get close to the water if you need me to. No, you're good. Okay, so, Pat, I'm going to start it now, okay? So, our, oh. our trivia today, we had Dan Hannon and resident fan Cole Coyle on, and my trivia challenge to you three is, in 60 seconds, how many Mets players... Can you name from the 2006 roster when they won the NL East and made it to NLCS? Now you can also include players from the playoff team as well. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's just it's just people that were on the roster at any point throughout the season. Yes. Correct. All right, hold on. Then we're we're gonna start the clock. You ready? No, hold on. Is it just players that were on the team at any point throughout the season? Yes. Yes. All right. The team, All right. Hold, the, hold the, on a second. No, no, no. The time starts now. All right. Um, Jose Reyes, David Wright, Paul Duca, um, Carlos Delgado, Jose Valentin, uh, Xavier Nady, Carlos Beltran, Andy Chavez, Aaron Heilman, Juana Sanchez. Uh, Roberto Hernandez, Tom Glavin, Pedro Martinez, El Duque, 
Um, let's see. Uh, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, 20 seconds. Julio Franco was on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, probably like an Anderson Hernandez type. He was probably around for a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, trying to think of the bullpen. Uh, Pedro, not Pedro Feliciano was on the team then. A little early for him. He's a lefty. Scott Schoenweiss, done. maybe. Done, done, done. You get Schoenweiss if he was on the team. Uh, he was not. So, I, Pat, I'm a little surprised. I, I ended up beating you. I had 17. I think you got 16. Cole ended up getting 22 or 23. We have to go back and check the tape. But I'm going to assume that this is because you're a few deep on the beach. That's what I'm going to hope because I'm pretty disappointed in your effort. Uh, stone cold sober. I just got to the beach. Well, then I'm just not happy with you. Yeah, I'm not happy with myself either. All right. Well, we appreciate you playing. Yep. Thanks uh, for having me on. Let's go Mets. All right. It's a- the Grom Southie, we're looking at a good season. All right, I'll see you. Cole, you are our trivia champion. You have 30 seconds of FaceTime. I'm shocked. I can't believe Kaplan didn't get uh, get up to 23 or at least high. He was on a um, beach. You know what? No excuses. If, it feels good to be a winner. It feels good to be on top. Uh, I don't know if the people know this, but we did our Sporkle trivia back at the beginning of all this, and I won that too. So uh, let's keep the trivia going. This is great. I love this. All right, and then, Cole, very quickly, what are your realistic thoughts on the Mets season this year? Uh, Well, hopefully DeGrom is healthy. The back thing is is a bit of a scare. Um, They got a shot. They got a legitimate shot. I mean, everybody does in a 60-game season, but – I think it's going to come down to starting pitching for us and, and, and to see uh, what we get out of the bullpen. We can't have the same Edwin Diaz as last year. Can't have the same Juris Familia as last year. So, uh, like, Alonzo's going to hit bombs. Cespedes, if you get anything out of him, it's a plus. Um, it's going to come down to, to starting pitching in the bullpen. I so agree. We'll see what happens. It's funny. This is, our, this is par for the course. We're usually pretty optimistic right now. Give us about – Three innings in, and we'll get the text from Kaplan. Yeah, right, right. Kaplan's going to text us three innings in. The season's <laughs> over. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, listen, if you get off to a hard, you get off to a hot start like they did. I think it was like two years ago. Yep. They started off like thirteen and three. I mean, you're you're all the way out in front, and. Uh, everyone's chasing you then you can play 500 ball from there on out so we'll see what happens it'll be interesting that's true and we look for i look forward to more group chats where we just we do bill a favor by throwing him in as our our bandwagon mets fan but uh yeah our bandwagon mets fan <laughs> you uh you're a trivia champion so we'll send you a shirt when we make them and i hope you enjoy the rest of your day awesome thanks guys Alrighty then a super fun trivia segment ran by buckets good job bill Thank you so much to our good friends from Cortland, Pat Kaplan and Cole Coyle, both diehard Mets fans. Hopefully the Mets do okay this year. I do want to make one correction. Pedro Feliciano actually did pitch seven games with the Mets that year, so both Pat and I tied with 17. I did not beat him, but we are still six short shy of Cole's 23. By Cole winning, he earned himself a spot into this week's Mount Rushmore of starting pitchers post-2000 with our good friend Corey Lloyd. Hope you enjoy. Here we go! 
We are very excited to welcome on two of our good friends, both now recurring guests, Cole in the same episode, and then we have our good friend Corey coming back. So, Cole Coyle, you won our trivia challenge this week that awarded you a spot on, excuse me, a spot as a contestant on our Mount Rushmore of starting pitchers. So, thank you for joining us again. Not a problem. This is a big episode for you. I can't wait for you to share it with all your friends and family. I am very excited to not only win trivia, but also dominate this Mount Rushmore. Very good. Very good. And Mr. Lloyd, our resident baseball expert, nice to see you. Happy to be back. All right. So let's do it. So our Mount Rushmore this week is sticking with our baseball theme, and we are going to make our starting rotation of post-2000 starting pitchers. So here's the criteria. It's the prime of their career post-2000. So you could technically pick a guy like maybe Randy Johnson, even though he kind of fizzled out toward the early 2000s. But I guess you could find a couple years in there you could count. And we are only doing four starting pitchers. It's a shortened season. I liked that, Corey. That was a good uh, antidote you sent through text. So it's a shortened season. So we're only going four starting pitchers deep. And we did a random order generator. I promise this is how it worked out. It's going to go Bill, Dan, Cole, Corey. All right, so, Corey, you're going to have two on the wraparound. And I will say this. It's going to depend how you want to do it. So one thing I'll say is you can pick a guy over longevity. Let's say I'll just stick with Maddox. Let's say he was great in the 2000s. So you can say, well, I'm going to pick Greg Maddox. There's this year, this year, this year. Or you can say, you know what, R.A. Dickey was dominant that year. I'm going to go with, you know, 2000-whatever R.A. Dickey. So you're not going to get punished for that because his prime was really only one year but you could count that toward your Mount Rushmore. Are the rules understood? Yes. All right. He so, was dominant that one He was year. dominant, yeah. He was. So, Bill, you are first on the clock. Yeah, I didn't have to put much thought into this one. This is a no-brainer for me. It's Pedro Martinez. And, yes, a few of his prime years are before the year 2000. But if you want to pull one year, sure. We can pull 2000 at the height of the steroid era, 18 and 6. His whip is what boggles my mind the most especially that year point point seven three seven um just unbelievable 1.74 era and then also you know the 2002 year 20 and four again under one on the whip uh he was dominant for years post 2000 and for a couple of the years leading up to 2000 pedro martinez is my number one pick it's a good pick, Bill. That's a good pick. I need you to figure out the computer situation. It's not charging. It's going to die. Then we're going to lose all this. Okay. All right. All right. Just some technical difficulties here. That's a good pick. I I'm very glad that my guy uh, fell to me. Again, I guess you can look at it as if I'm going to go on a deep playoff run, maybe I don't want this guy. But you talk about dominance since 2000. I'm going to go with Clayton Kershaw. I mean, it's very rare that pitchers are able to win MVPs. He's Won an MVP. He's won multiple Cy Youngs, three Cy Youngs. He's a notorious all-star. Again, you can look at his playoff performance as fine. But from 2011 to, let's see, 2011 to 2017, listen to these ERAs. 2 2.28, 2.53, 1.83, 1.77, 2.13, 1.69. Unbelievable. Almost Unbelievable as good as ERAs. Pedro. Yeah, that's absolutely right, except that Pedro had – okay, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to argue with you right now. But 
21 wins multiple times. He, I mean, a 695 winning percentage in his career. He's been great. He's been the leader of that team. So I'm going to go with Clayton Kershaw. Nice. All right. I think that means I'm up. Um, I I feel like this leaves me one choice and one choice only. I have to go with the only pitcher um, who won an MVP, and that's Justin Verlander. Good one. Uh, Verlander. Um, is Corey's a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-time All-Star, uh, multiple uh, multi-game winners. I think the only time he's had like one season in his career, besides his rookie year, where he's had single-digit wins, which is insane. Yeah, it is. Um, he's uh, the year he won his All-Star, uh, the MVP. He had a .92 WHIP. He's letting up less than one person per inning on base. I also I think he had less than a one whip last year too, um, and I think uh, as you see Corey with the uh, Astros hat, um, playoff runs and World Series, man, that's got to come into play, and it's something that uh, Clayton Kershaw and um, Pedro Martinez don't have. Well, Pedro a little bit, but definitely right. more Pedro than almost led that 06 team, the Mets, to the World Series. <laughs> Almost, but his 06 numbers weren't great either. No, they're um, terrible. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the MVP. I'll take Verlander for sure. All right, Corey, you're up with two. Yeah, I love that pick. I was hoping that he was going to fall to me. Um, Clayton Kershaw, love the value there. Um, I'm going to start. I'm going to go new school and a little old school. I'm going to go with Max Scherzer, um, just an absolute dominant power pitcher. Um, Seven All-Stars, three Cy Youngs, uh, no MVPs, unfortunately, has a World Series under his belt um, this past season. So I'm going to go with Max Scherzer, a power pitcher to start uh, at the top of my staff. I don't know how any hitters get any hits off him looking at him with those two different eyes up on the mound. Good point. Um, well, happy with, happy with that pick, him falling to me. And on the wraparound, I'm going to go old school. Um, I know he's a little more prevalent for what he did in the nineties. Um, but he also had a pretty good start to the 2000 era where he won, uh, three of his four NL Cy Youngs from 2000, 2002. I'm going to go with Randy Johnson. Uh, so get a big, scary lefty, uh, you know, at the top of my rotation to compliment Scherzer. So Randy Johnson and Max Scherzer, uh, power pitcher, righty. And uh, we got a lefty that killed the bird mid-flight, which is always intimidating because you never know if you're going to be that bird. So pretty happy with those two picks. I, um, the big unit off the board, baby. Yeah, that's I yep. like that pick. And he is – you have a very intimidating staff. And I will say one of the things that I am most excited about for this upcoming baseball season is – how are they going to prevent hearing everything that Max Scherzer is screaming at opposing players? Like how weird is that going to be that now it's going to be like they're in the state, like, like across a bar where he's just going to be screaming the Pumping the fan noise. Yeah. Pumping the fan I don't know noise. what they're going to do, but that's a great <laughs> thing. They need to do that a little more often. What they need to do is like do uh, subscriptions where you can uh, listen to a certain player mic'd up or a certain team. Um, and yeah, there's going to be swearing going on, but it's not for, you know, the average householders and the kids running around. Uh, if you want to pay a couple extra dollars for that, uh, that kind of all-star feel where you're, you know, hearing people talk trash, I would absolutely sign up and Max Scherzer will do that. Make it rated R. MLB. And they did that in spring training. I loved it. MLB after yep. dark. I like that. 
I yeah, think, absolutely. I like I like the players being mic'd up. I, I I I saw they had Christian Yelich mic'd up for a whole game the other day, which I thought was crazy. Like during his at bats and everything, I feel like they'd be very distracting for a player. But I also think like I saw an MLB Network the other day. They were talking about why can't they mic it up and just do specials later, like they do in the NFL. The NFL they don't do it live. I mean, obviously they screwed Sam Darnold this year. Shut up. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's a good pick. All right. Uh, Cole, you are now up. Yeah. Um, I had to do a little digging for this one. Uh, you lose two years of his career from the nineties, 98 and 99, but I'm going to go with the former blue Jay, the former Philadelphia Philly. That would be Mr. Roy Halladay, uh, two Cy Youngs under his belt, 203 career wins, um, with a lifetime 338 ERA and, a 1.178 whip so basically like almost like 1.2 which is really good um Halliday in, in the prime of his career was dominant absolutely dominant and for some mediocre at best blue jays teams um did have some deep playoff runs with the phillies and i think he's got two rings there uh so i'm, I'm going with doc baby give me Halliday. hall of famer too yep great pick obviously cut down way too early um, post career, yeah. but no, I, I think that's an awesome pick. I think when you look at, again, overall dominance, we actually had, um, we had Boog Shambi on this episode and he talks about one of his favorite memories being a broadcaster is calling Halliday's, I believe it was a no hitter, but he only walked one person or something like that. Right. When he beat the red crazy. Yeah. So that's definitely dominance. All right. So I believe I am up and let's see, I'm going to go with, um, a guy that, uh, probably one of the first minus Dontrell Willis, one of the first guys that fell in love with just the way he pitched. So this might be a little bit of a reach, but um, I'm going to go with Tim Lincecum. He's a three-time World Series winner. He won a couple Cy Youngs. He had an awesome pitching delivery that everyone, you know, has heard the story about his dad would make him, you know, whip the towel from all the way forward, all the way back. Hope or supposed to prevent injuries. I'm pretty sure injuries derailed his career, but so it, kind of a short-lived career, only eight years. But if you look at those stats, I mean, 18 and five. Actually, oh my God, he only had a couple winning seasons, but his ERAs were always very low. So um, yeah, he had like three or four really good years, and then it was downhill. And again, three. I'm gonna get some World Series pedigree at this pick, so I'm gonna go Tim Lincecum. Bill, you're up for two. Yep, and my first one, I was just crossing my fingers for the last five minutes. Very, very uh, thrilled to have this guy fall to me. Um, he's kind of gone. He's a little bit undernoticed, I'd say, because he played the prime of his career in Minnesota, and that's Johan Santana. Uh, you look at some of the seasons. Everything has been since 2000. His age 21 season was in 2000. Uh, you know, in, in 2004, he went to 20 games, four-time All-Star, his age 27 season in 06, two, 277 ERA. His whip was always around one. Um, so to me, you know, a couple Cy Youngs as well. So that's a that's a good value pick for me there. And my second pick is a little bit more, this is a little bit more difficult. I've been kind of battling this one. Hmm. Oh, boy, you're, you're putting me on the clock here. Uh Pretty sure you knew you'd be up here. But. I know. All right, I'm going to go with the king, King Felix Hernandez. Uh, some of his – it could be a reach. You know, he's never won 20 games, but in his prime, you know, again, not the biggest market, especially us being on the East Coast, him playing a lot of late-night games on the West Coast. But 
You look at some of his seasons, such as his 09-010 run, where he won 19 games, 2.27 ERA, his whip under one, or just, just a shade over one. His whip was always around one. That, to me, whip is kind of like the best um, statistic to kind of judge pitchers. Um, so, you know, he's got a Cy Young in the bag. Very, very highly, actually, in a couple MVP, MVP votes as well. So I'll go with King Felix Hernandez, who's still doing it. Absolutely. Um, and again, a guy I feel bad, never been able to pitch in the postseason, was on the Braves, but bailed due to COVID reasons and whatnot. So definitely underappreciated, but a guy with some swag out there. I like that. And I'm going to, again, I, I don't think I'm going to win this one after my first two picks. I, I'm not happy with the Lincecum pick. I panicked with that one, but I'm going to go, now I'm going to go with one that I know is not going to get back to me because Cole's on the board. So I'm going to go with, again, a guy that could possibly just be entering his prime, but the past two seasons have been complete and utter dominance. I'm going to go with Jacob DeGrom. His last two years, a whip under two both years, back-to-back Cy Youngs. And I think what makes it even more impressive is that Cole and I watch game in and game out. And to win the Cy Young with those shitty Mets teams, I mean, it is unbelievable the lack of run support this guy gets. He had a 1-7 ERA in 2018 and finished 10-9. and That shows you how incompetent Great. the New York Mets offense was. One of the most infuriating things is watching him go out and pitch eight shutout innings, and then the bullpen blows it in the ninth form, or it's 1-1 going into the ninth. And I will say that one, I think it's definitely going to help his win-loss this year, the fact that there's a DH. He doesn't have to come out for these ridiculous reasons. So another I'm DH being in both leagues, um, not only because of the ground, but I want Cespedes to keep – playing uh but i i'm i'm gonna go with degrom again i th- hopefully there's three more years of dominance after this so uh definitely a homer pick with the mets but bill took santana so i knew i had to get one met i was close to taking degrom over felix that's a good pick so i'm gonna go with degrom i he was next up on the board for me at back-to-back cy youngs is nearly impossible to right. do um he's he's definition of a stud he's the definition of an ace i'm gonna interrupt real quick Corey. do you think because if i had to look at it objectively i think scherzer kind of got hosed last year for the cy young as an outsider do you think Degrom was deserving of back-to-back cy youngs i don't think the one two years ago is debatable i don't care what his record was he was literally dominant but last year i think him and scherzer were close and so are you a proponent that wins don't mean much as a pitcher when it comes down to it due to how many other factors it takes to get a win yeah, I think wins is a little overrated. Um, I mean, if you think about it, you can win games 15 to 14, play right. terrible, but your offense is lighting up the scoreboard for you. And you look at it, you got a 14 ERA, yet you won 20 games. Right. Now, I know yeah, that's, that's, special. Yeah. that's not going to happen all the time, but I would absolutely have given DeGrom that award just for having to play with that putrid offense. <laughs> um I mean, how many games were there where he's let up like two runs and had no decisions? You know what? It, was it, it always seems to be against the Braves. He'll dominate the Braves for eight innings, and then Freddie Freeman will hit a double to lead off the ninth, and you're like, well, this game's over. So, um, but yeah. Well, Freddie Freeman has coronavirus, so DeGrom, uh, you know, hopefully that he didn't do that. You know, hopefully he didn't send any biological warfare right, over to him, right. trying to get one up on the season. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's – what he's doing, and, and I really feel for you guys. I'm pulling for you for, uh, you know, an Astros Mets World Series this year, as we do every, every year, year, having a heart to heart with Deuce, <laughs> talking about, uh, you know, the upcoming season. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely give that to DeGrom. I think that's a great pick, and I think he's 
uh, we're just scratching the surface on what he's going to do for his career. Yeah, the problem is he came into the league late, so he's already 31. He came into the league at 26. But I was going to say it's an interesting pick. He he does he's what six seven years under his belt. Yeah, only six. Yeah, only six. Yeah. So That's... all right, uh, Cole, you're up. All right, um, I'm between two right now. I'm not going to tell you one of them because maybe it'll <laughs> fall to me in a little bit. Um, but I am going to go. It's a weird one. Um, it's another Astro. I'm going with Zach Greinke. It's a great pick. Uh, Very underrated. Dude. Dude's been around the block, man. Kansas City, Milwaukee. Uh, I think he even got traded to the Angels yep. in there, the Dodgers, and then now, uh, well, Arizona, and then uh, now with Houston. Uh, but if you look at his career, it's he's got unbelievable stats, unbelievable numbers, 205 wins, uh, 335 ERA, and his uh, career whip, again, similar to Halliday, uh, 1.15, so it's even less than Halliday's. Uh, he's got a Cy Young under his belt. Uh, in 2015, he had a 166 ERA and like barely got noticed out in Los Angeles because uh, Kershaw was there. So um, he's a weirdo for sure. Yep. So I, I take that however you want. What I don't know is there like a weirdness category on on MLB the Show or on this Mount Rushmore? I, I think it's interesting. Like if let's say Granky continues, if he continues on this stretch for let's say four more years, he's probably a Hall of Famer, correct? Yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, I don't, I don't, can't remember Hall of Famer, at least a pitcher that played for this many teams. I think it's crazy yeah. that he just can't stick around. I mean, he's he's traveling all over. He's been, like you said, nine different teams. Or excuse me, let's see, one, two, three, four, six different teams, and he's been great everywhere he's been. I mean, obviously it was a slow start in yeah. his early twenties with the Royals, but he was great with them um, in two thousand nine. Then he goes to Milwaukee again, the Angels for one year or for half a year. It's crazy that he can't stick around. But, yeah, I'm sure the Astros love to have him now. So, that's a great pick. Great pick. What did they, So, they got him last year, mid-year? Did I make that Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the deadline. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Who would they give so, up yeah, for him? Um, not too much, actually. Just a, a hall of prospects over the Diamondbacks. Um, no one that's really stepped up or done anything too significant so far. So. All right. Uh, nothing that stung too much. I mean, the same goes for that Verlander trade and the Cole trade. So I was a big prospect growing up because the Astros were always trash. But, yep. uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we can get some, some MLB proven pitchers, then um, absolutely pull the trigger. And Grinky's a heck of a personality. There's a few uh, articles floating around of um, some of his past teammates telling stories about him. And it's, it's interesting. He, he's an absolute technician when it comes to it. A guy that's always honing his craft always looking to get better. So anytime he's talking and it's not often, um, I definitely try to listen in and see what he has to say. And to piggyback off that, this isn't my pick, but um, a guy who I really enjoy listening to these days is Trevor Bauer. I know a lot yep. of people might think that I don't like him because he bashes the Astros and a lot of it's, you know, rightfully so, but talking about a guy who just is obsessed with his craft and pitching in general, um, anytime, you know, for any baseball purist, I know he's a little bit out there, uh, but if you have an opportunity to listen to him, then definitely uh, try to tune into to Trevor Bauer whenever possible. You can pick Trevor Bauer, by the way. That'd be fine. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on Trevor Bauer. I'm gonna go with someone that was a little better. Um, uh, I'm gonna go with Roger Clemens. Wow. Uh, now a lot of oh, people are thinking, you know, uh, 90, a lot of people are probably thinking Roger Clemens. You know, uh, more so of a '90s pitcher. 
but uh, he did quite uh, quite a bit of damage in the 2000s with the uh, the Yankees and the Astros. Didn't have double digit losses at all. Won 20 games, 17 games, 18 games. Um, as we know, he's got you know a plethora of uh, seven Cy Youngs and MVP. Uh, so he's quite decorated. And so we would get him in, in his late 30s, but that's where Verlander is. So, you know, if you can kind of give me another Verlander and his success and being able to dominate, uh, you know, on a daily basis, then I'd be more than happy with that. So uh, I got Scherzer, Randy Johns, and I'm going to need to uh, add a little youth to that. So I'm going to go with – actually, I'm, I'm a little torn here. I know what um, you're torn with. Don't say it because I want to see if it will um, sneak by. I'm a little torn right here. Uh, you know, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to stick to my stick to my roots. Uh, one of the first pitchers I fell in love with. I'm gonna have to go with Roy Oswalt. Uh, so not quite the week that I was looking for. There's a couple of a couple of really good youthful pitchers that I think are still carving out a career. Uh, but I'm gonna have to go with Roy Oswalt. I'm probably gonna lose a couple votes for that. No, that's uh, but that's pick. a guy who, who got me. You know, just just an absolute workhorse. Showed up, pitched his innings. Uh, you know, you probably see him at a bar, and you probably think that you can get a hit off of him. Uh, but this guy was just, uh, you know, part of the the Astros come up, just coming out there, and and he didn't have too many people uh, surrounding him until he got Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit. So uh, he had to shoulder the load. Really didn't have a lot of opportunity to, you know, lose the games when he was on the mound. Um, but I got to go with uh, I got to go with um, Roy Oswalt, who actually was part of one of my favorite rotations of all time when he got traded to the Phillies when he was with Halliday, yep. uh, Cliff Lee, and Colt yep. Hamill. So maybe you can do a Mount Rushmore of uh, the best pitching rotations of yep. all time. I know that'd be up there along with that uh, that Tigers rotation that had um, Verlander and, and a couple of those other studs there too. So I'm gonna finish it out. Yeah. Um, and I. Yep, absolutely. So I'm going to have to go with Royals. Well, a little bit of a homer pick, but I can sleep just fine at night knowing that he's my fourth pitcher. That's fine. That's a good pick. I like that pick. I can't believe Clemens. You miss out on all those Red Sox years, even when he went to the Blue Jays. Yep. That's that's I tough. I've told this story. You had seven, seven Cy Youngs, but you probably only get like two of them from the 2000s on. I, and again, that's a homer pick because he was great with the Astros uh, in the thousands. But I'm going to say this. I – and I know people say I'm crazy. Like there's that one entourage episode when Turtle talks about how much he hates Tom Brady, but then he meets him and he like loves him and has a great guy. I am telling yeah. you right now, if I saw Roger Clemens on the street, I'd spit in his face. He's my least favorite <laughs> athlete of all time. And I don't I you know who I should really hate is the umpire that didn't throw him out. But when he threw the bat at Piazza's feet and just Correct. said, Oh, sorry, I, I thought it was the ball and nobody questioned Royd Rage then. I just never understood the logic. Why would you be throwing the ball yes. at Mike Piazza? At, at his, yeah, it's not a dodgeball. say it doesn't make sense. Yeah. What, no one has ever told you, throw the baseball at the person running the first base. I hate him. Unbelievable. I hate him. But again, We're, Corey, good pick in terms, of, in terms of being a pitcher. So what you're saying is you're going to vote for my team yeah. based on your <laughs> love for Roger Clemens alone. Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You we'll do see. have the all-star intimidating yeah. team, I will say. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> Yeah, Roy, Roy I, that team was in a bar, forget it. Yep. Yeah, Roy, Royals took it back a little bit. There are a couple of guys, if I want to go for a bully team, I could have definitely taken. 
Um, and I think he might get picked over the next three. I was going to pander a little bit, well, but that's, that's not my yep. call, so I couldn't do it. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm between uh, two guys right now. I know the Josh other one won't fingers. get picked. It'd be such a homer pick for me. But I'm I'm going to go with um, CC Sabathia. No! Yeah. That's what I was thinking. That's going to get a lot of votes for him being on your list. I couldn't do it, though. God bless you. You get those early years. I mean, as a Mets fan, it hurts because you picture him with the Yankees now. Um, but those Cleveland years were unbelievable, man. Yeah. Um, 251 total wins over a 19-year career. Uh, ERA is a little bloated after the last three or four years, 374. Whip is a, a 125, which isn't great. Um, but overall, you get um, one Cy Young. Um, how many All-Star games? One, two, three, four, five, six All-Star games. I, I would say, in my mind, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Um, he might not get on, on the first or the second try, but I, okay. I think he'll get in eventually. Yep. Um, and to do it from that weird, like, 2001 to 2005 where, like, you were that great in an era where, like, people probably were cheating that we still don't know about. Right. Um, the dude was an absolute workhorse. And, and even at the end of his career, you knew you were going to get five innings and he, 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 I appreciate the fact that he's somebody that like, almost like a Vince Carter, where like, you had to kind of change the way you did it over the course of your career. You couldn't be throwing 98 and, and dropping hard sliders. Yep. He ended up having to be t- changed to more of a, a Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin type, especially from the lefty side, um, where he's being a little bit more picky uh, around the strike zone and using his slider. Yeah. Um, to kind of break into the strike zone rather than getting swings and misses. Okay. Uh, so I appreciate the fact that that the longevity of his career, um, Cy Young in there, a uh, bunch of All-Star games, 251 wins. So I'll take CeCe, man. Yeah, Cole, let me add one thing about CeCe. My favorite year of CeCe was when he got traded from Cleveland to Milwaukee. Yeah, he rolled him. Yeah. He, they rode right. him so hard. He made 17 starts with the Brewers going 11-2 and that year with a 165 ERA. And in those 17 starts, seven complete games with three shutouts. And in, all, in those 17 starts, he was still fifth in NL Cy Young voting that year. That's crazy. Really? We might see similar stats to, like, I was thinking, like, um, I'll just throw a name out there. I don't know if anyone's going to pick him. But, like, someone like Garrett Cole yeah. might have, what, 15 starts in a 60-game season. He could potentially get to 10, 10 wins. Right. And it's uh, it's it's similar to that CC year where he gets 17 starts and he, he goes well, what 11 and two I think you said Bill, yeah, unreal. Yeah. That's I hope uh, Garrett Cole has zero wins this season. Um, hope he has a Degrom year where he pitches really well, but doesn't get the support and they lose those games. Um, but yeah, no, I, that that's a good pick. That's kind of who I was thinking. I was going to pander a little bit, you know, but. Uh, he, he's one of the few Yankees that I like. You know, he, he's had his ups and downs um, when you hear some of the things he's battled. So he's an easy guy to pull for and hear these stories of uh, him having his teammates back. So um, I wish he was on any other team. He's an easy guy to cheer for when he wasn't in pinstripes. But even when he's there, as long as he's not playing the Astros, um, you know, that's an easy guy to pull for, which says a lot. So uh, I think that's a really good pick. He was, uh, you know, one of the options uh, for my last pick. So I like that one. Oh, this is tough. We're in a spot where now it's a lot of like, it's a, a lot of guys you got to pick and choose here. So, um, 
I'm going to go with <clears throat> who do I have right now? I got I want Kershaw, Lincecum. All right, I'm going to go with a righty then. I'm, all right, I'm you know what? I'm going to go with the old Bulldog here. And Honestly, I think what sticks out is these Padres teams from the early thousands were not great, but he was lighting it up. So I'm going to go with Jake Peavy. I don't know if any really numbers jump out on, <clears throat> out on the page, but he has a Cy Young. He um, dominated a couple years, two points, led the ERA for two years, was a strikeout machine, went 19 and 6 in 2007. So picture that, Jake Peavy, on this team. And again, I don't know what kind of support he was getting, what other pitch, pitchers were on those staffs, but it, an absolute bulldog. Reminds me of a Max Scherzer type, you know, very intense. Um, there's a couple other pitchers I was going for, but I don't want any, um, any more soft lefties on this team. So I'm going to go with. Uh, the grinder, Jake Peavy. And, I, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize he had some pretty good success with the White Sox after, too, before, Sox, fini- yeah, yeah, yeah. before finishing up with um, the Giants. So pretty long career. I have, I would not have guessed he played 15 years. But, um, yeah, so I'm going to go with the – I'm going to go with Jake Peavy. My team sucks. I'm going <laughs> to finish last for sure. Peavy, Peavy's interesting. <laughs> now that I'm the final pick, I can just kind of throw out some honorable mentions and you guys can back me up after. I still don't know who I'm going to pick, so that's why I'm throwing these names out there. Madison Bumpgarner has been – I've been thinking yeah. about him. CeCe was the guy I really wanted. Chris Sale's out there, obviously, still doing his thing. Um, Strasburg, you know, has been dominant, and that yeah. that was really highlighted last year. Um, Lester is one that's really kind of underrated for me as well, but I'm going to stick um, with Steven Strasburg based on his, his production – you know, he's only 31 years old, and he had his best career season going 18-6 and six with a 3-3-2 ERA, 104 whip, and an NL high 209 innings. So, for me, um, kind of getting a guy who's still pitching, getting a guy who's still in somewhat, I guess you can say, of his prime, a World Series champion, um, a three-time All-Star, I will finish a draft with a phenom who has lived up to the hype, Steven Strasburg. Leaving yeah. Mike Mussina, Hall of Famer, off the board. Yeah. Um, you know what? I was debating my last pick. I just don't like them as people, so I didn't pick them. And that's funny because I have no idea how Jake Peavy is as a person. But, like, Cliff Lee had some his very interesting career involved in mm-hmm. one of the most epic trades ever, too, when him, Brandon Phillips, and Grady Sizemore came over from Montreal for Bartolo Colon. But, um, that's another name. Yeah, yeah, longevity-wise. You know what else is real quick, not to go for a tangent, I love how Bartolo just got busted for steroids and nobody cared. And he's got another family, nobody cares. You know what I mean? He's just a big fan. Yeah, remember lovable, that article? Yeah. He had a sick family. He's just a lovable guy. But um, And then David Price. I don't. I think I pandered with that one because I, I feel like people don't appreciate David Price, especially since there's a lot of Red Sox fans that felt he underperformed. So I didn't want to pick him either. But um, I got a few names that, that yeah. Go ahead. I didn't want to pick. I didn't want to pick Cole Hamels. Great name. Yep. <laughs> can't pick him. Can't pick him. Yeah. Um, Chris Carpenter and Adam yeah, Wainwright. Yep. I know. I couldn't pick them either. Freaking curveball. I ah. still see Beltran's knees buckling in my nightmares. Oh uh, uh, God! I, it's like just repeated in my head. Uh, Andy Pettit. You lose a few years at the beginning of yep. his career. Um, awesome that he used to put his uh, gloves so you can only see his eyes. And if, if that would have been well, a good I, pick for your intimidating team, Corey. To me, Degrom is like very similar yeah. to Pettit in that style. Yep. Um, the last person I'm like, if he, I, I think I would have picked him. I think we would have had to probably go to five or six. 
uh, rounds if we were doing this. Probably Mark Burley deserves to be in the conversation. Yep. Yeah, I He's thought about that too. Great years with White Sox, even up in Toronto too. Mm-hmm. So, I like yeah, Burley was on my list when you you had said a bulldog, uh, Hannon. I thought you might have gone him. That guy was just pitching 200 innings yep. every year without fail. Uh, and he wasn't on great teams, and you send him out there, and uh, you know he would produce. Uh, um, and Jake Peavy looks like his jaw is made of absolute concrete. <laughs> uh, that's just one thing that will always uh, stick out to me when when anyone says Jake Peavy. He would just clench his jaw, and it looked like he could take about two hundred yep. punches, also, and it won't affect him at all. Always had a huge wad in, so he would not have thrived in this COVID season where you're not allowed to chew tobacco or spit seeds or anything. He would have been very none out of, of the, place. N- none of the A's, no Barry yeah, I know. Zito. I thought about, no, I thought about no Zito. Bulger. I thought about Zito. Like Mark Mulder, I feel like was way too, um, way too brief of a stint. But Tim Hudson had a pretty good career. I thought Hudson, about yeah, even with the Braves. Yeah, too. I thought about Zito just because I still think like that was the first pitch that I thought was hilarious. That curveball that literally. Yeah. Drop from eyes to knees. Yeah. So, but no. You know what? It's like a dramatic video game pitch. Yep. I'm gonna tell you right now. I want I want bulldogs on my staff. And if there's one person that's the opposite of a bulldog, it's Barry Zito. God bless him. But he's he's you not. Could have gonna... went with Carlos Zambrano. You could have an all-time hitting. Well, staff. No, that's a that's. A, I don't want any psychos on my team. I said a bulldog, <laughs> not a guy that if I take him out we'll of the game. Send games, him to Corey's team. He'll yeah. fit in. Yeah, fine true, with true, true. Do you have any yeah, snubs? Absolute hoss. Do you have any snubs, Zilo? Um, Madison Bumgarner was quite high up on my list. Um, I kind of passed up on him for Oswald. Um, so my last pick, I was going between, uh, Sabathia, Strasburg, uh, Bumgarner, and then, a, uh, a couple of guys that kind of stood out to me. I mean, Chris Sale is very solid, so that's not too surprising, but the career that Corey Kluber had, yeah. um, I was doing a little research yes, last and, and he was popping up quite frequently um, in like that 10 to 15 range of, of best pitchers of the, you know, the last 10 years. Uh, so, you know, despite a great name spelled correctly, sorry, Seymour, um, <laughs> you know, he's a guy that I, you know, I had to pass on. But, uh, yeah, I would say probably Bumgardner, Kluber, Sale, a couple of the snubs that uh, probably would have gone in the next round if you wanted to extend it to a full five-person pitching staff in a normal year. Um, Hannon, I was shocked that you took Lincecum over Johan Santana. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's funny. If I, I didn't make a list. I was just going by, like, just different tabs on my screen. And yeah. um, I, I think Lincecum, again, I got all rattled because, you know, I went on and on about how Kershaw has been great but not in playoffs. And then Cole went right at me saying he wants a guy with playoff success and. <laughs> Santana was good, but again, he never had the opportunity. I don't think he ever pitched in the postseason. Did he? With, oh, no, I'm sorry. With the Twins, he probably was in those division Twins, series when yeah. they always lost to the Yankees. But um, yeah. he just didn't have the pedigree. I mean, Lincecum was the ace on those. I mean, again, you got Matt Cain, uh, but Lincecum was the ace to, to a couple of those World Series teams. So I, I just remember him just being dominant. And again, Santana with the Mets. He had a great I – don't, I don't remember, like, again, maybe it's just too long ago or maybe the teams just sucked. I don't remember going out being like – like when I watched a Grom, I know that the team's not – I'd be shocked if the other team's scoring more than two runs. I never thought that about Santana. I was it's pumped. It's a different style. It's a very yeah. different style because that circle change was – Deadly. Almost unhittable yep. if it was on. 
Um, and, and I think what, and like, you could say the same thing about R.A. Dickey too. Yep. What really helps a lot of these guys in New York and people don't talk about it, but like when you're playing out at city field and we've been to city field before, oh, yeah. it's hot, it's humid, it's nasty. And you're like right on the water. You, when it's humid like that, your hands are a little bit moist and you can get a really good grip on the ball. And I think that really helped R.A. Dickey with his knuckleball. I think it helped Johan with the circle change a little bit too. That's- when, when you get like 70, 80% humidity and it's not going to rain, you get an incredible grip on, on the baseball. I would say I severely regret not picking Bumgarner. It didn't even cross my mind. I, I am – but, I was going to ask if I could change my pick, being the last guy. I, absolutely right when I picked, not. No, I know, I know. Right when I picked Strasburg, I said, you know, I had three <laughs> I had three aces, none with a ton of play, playoff pedigree. Obviously, Strasburg did it for one year, but Bumgarner would have been the final piece to my puzzle. That's what I, I'd regret that, but also Bumgarner's involved in some of my worst memories as a fan. I'll tell you two. Well, uh, one, that sure. one, that one game playoff a couple years ago. Uh, when he uh, literally just. Who's the third baseman who hit the home run off Familia? What's his name? Um, Connor, yeah. is it? Was it Duffy? Nah, uh, I, I want to. I want to say Gillespie. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it might have been. Yeah. Ugh. But also, you know, it's this involved. This ties in nicely because we talked about the humidity at City Field. I went to a day game while visiting my brother once. It was me, and um, me and my dad went. It was Bartolo versus Bumgardner. It was a. It was like ninety degrees out. I promise you, it took. 15 minutes for Bartolo to walk in from the bullpen. It's so hot. He'd take 20 steps okay. and stop. And his butt and his, the guy next to him would just hand him a towel. He'd pat himself down, take another 20 steps, do the same thing. 15 minutes it took him to walk in from the bullpen. And Bumgarner pitched a complete game shutout and hit a grand slam. So he single-handedly destroyed the Mets that day. So that was another awful yeah. memory. If I you had. wanted to go best hitting pitchers, yeah. you'd probably go Bumgarner. You could put Syndergaard up there. Yep, yep. If you want to staff, you, put, you yep. put Bartolo up there. He's got a home yeah, run. That's, that's true. And then you could go Zambrano. Zambrano was a beast at the plate. Mike Hampton, former Met. Oh, former Mike Astro, Hampton. too. Yeah. Hampton Mike. would have. Yeah. His nickname was the, it was the Bulldog, so he would have fitted nicely yep. with your team. Yeah, yeah perfect. Yep. All right, so that'll do it. I think we're all happy with our team. Make sure if you're listening, you go to Twitter and vote on Mount Rushmore 716 for your favorite team. Cole, what an episode for you. I want to appreciate you coming on. So thank you very much again. Absolutely. Anytime, guys. And, Corey, thank you again for coming on. Hopefully the results are a little more in favor as opposed to last time when Brayton Wilson punched us in the mouth with those uh, hockey teams. Yeah, I think I think Oswald might have been my wrist aligned, and I think that uh, I left some value on the board, so uh, that'll keep me up. For, I think the last poll, I think I was up for maybe five straight nights tossing and turning over those, so uh, hopefully it's not a repeat of uh, of that. So fingers crossed people do their research. They, uh, you know, uh, will throw some votes my way. Hopefully there's no Astros bias and how much they hate him. Don't tell them that I'm wearing an Astros hat during this, please. Yeah, I would say very few people actually um, listen to this and then go vote. So I think you might be good. But, uh, again, guys, I really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Same to you. Have a good one, guys. Alrighty then. Another great Mount Rushmore in the books. Thank you to Corey Lloyd and Cole Coyle, our good friends, for joining us. Make sure you go to Twitter and find our Mount Rushmore 716 page that our good friends run They'll be posting it on Tuesday. You can vote for your favorite starting rotation, and something tells me I will not be winning. We now send it off to two outstanding interviews. First, with probably our biggest fish we've ever reeled in, ESPN play-by-play announcer John Boog Shambi, and then we head over to our R.E. McNamara Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past, 
former Bison's manager, Marty Brown. Here we go! This interview is brought to you by Arista Networks. Arista Networks is an industry leader in campus, Wi-Fi, data center, and cloud computing. Learn more about Arista at arista.com. Joining us now is ESPN Baseball play-by-play announcer, John Boog Shambi. Boog, thank you so much for making time for us today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Hey, John, Bucket's here. I know you grew up in New York City. Were you always a baseball-first kid growing up? And did you always have a dream from your childhood to have a career in sportscasting? So I, I, I loved baseball as a kid. I just always did. I, oh, and I was lucky enough. Both uh, my parents divorced when I was really young, but both sides of the family. My dad's side were they were big Phillies fans, and they get their hooks in me. My mom's side, big Yankees fans. And I think probably the best example would be I think I was six, and my parents went away on a cruise, or were going away on a cruise, and. Uh, they had to explain to me what a cruise was because I didn't understand. To me, all you do on a cruise, you eat the food, you play shuffleboard, you gamble, they sing, all this stuff. And when I finished, when he finished explaining, I looked at him and my only question was, how do you get the box scores? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you don't. And I said, well, I'm never going on one of those then. Um, and side note, I've actually never been on a cruise, but that's not the reason. But I just, I loved it. And I grew up in a community in New York City that that was the main sport. Had a great little league on Roosevelt Island. And I loved playing. I think I always knew I wanted to do something in sports and probably specifically baseball. I wanted, I liked playing, you know, I, I played a tiny bit. I was a terrible uh, you know, D1 player. I started at William & Mary and transferred to Boston College, but I liked playing. That's where... Yeah, uh, car alarm going off outside, yeah. That's all right. So I read that you uh, you called games with the Marlins from 97 to 04, so you witnessed both of their franchise World Series championships. I have to ask you, John, how cool was it being under 30, especially that first one in 97, calling you know, games at that era when you're so young and just so new into the industry? Yeah, the 97 team especially was amazing because it was such a veteran team. And I learned a ton. I, you know, I learned basically just to keep my mouth shut and just listen a lot. And it went a long way, and I, you know, built relationships in that regard. And it was a super veteran team with, you know, some edge to it. Guys like I say Salou and Gary Sheffield and Kevin Brown, um, Alex Fernandez. I mean, you had some guys that were, you know, edgy and uh, that's being nice at times, right. but they were great to me. Jim Leland was the, you know, manager. And the 2003 team, it was a bit more personal for me because, that core group had been around a while. They had been, for the most part, the fruits of the fire sale of the 97 team. And a good chunk of those guys that were 
you know, in those spots, the Derek Lees, the Mike Lowell's, Jeff Conine came late in the season, but, but Mike Redman was a backup catcher. You know, I, I was there when they drafted Josh Beckett and interviewed him the day that he signed. So they were guys I had history with and guys that I was roughly the same age as. So 2003 was, was pretty darn special for me. And, John, as we fast forward, you're now calling games for ESPN. And, and actually, during this pandemic, you've been getting up early, at least East Coast time, and calling some Korean baseball from the KBO. Tell us what that's been like and how difficult it is calling games when you're not physically in attendance. Are you guys in the same spot right now? Are you guys next to each other? Yeah. Okay, so, but have you, you've done remote stuff where someone's not in the same place, right? You know yes, the challenge yeah. with that. Right. So there's that, and that's, you know, we're just not used to that doing a, a baseball broadcast. And then there are the names, and then there's, they give you the lineups 30 minutes the first pitch. Twice <laughs> it's happened where 10 minutes to air, I get a phone call that somebody on the other end of the phone says, yeah. Um, okay. So the game we were going to do got rained out and you're going to do a different game. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? So that's happened a couple of times. And then we have absolutely, you know, I don't think most people look, we have the most amazing jobs. I don't think most people, you sit there, you listen to the announcers. Most people like to complain about the announcers. God bless you. But most people don't really know all the things that happen in terms of produce a broadcast. When you see a particular shot or a graphic and the way the producer, director, and the on-air people work together to present that stuff. In this instance, we have no control over anything. So if we come back from break, they can roll in a highlight of a defensive play from three innings ago, and we don't know what's coming or how long it's going to last. Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, we, we've turned it into a bit of a talk show, and we've had a lot of guests on. I'm, I'm at home in my apartment in New York City, and I've had some fun with my backgrounds. I basically have solicited and gone through my phone and asked people if it's okay. But almost all of, of the – pictures that I have that are goofy, funny, stupid. And I have people send me stuff. You know, I have Craig Council in full uniform, the Brewers manager um, mowing his lawn on a ride-along mower. I have Dan Schulman with a magnificent head of hair. I have Chris Singleton as a seven-year-old. I have former Marlon Derrick Lee in a full Michael Jordan, North Carolina uh, uniform, waving a white towel. I have Mike Breen and Michael Kay in college in black and white. I mean, just a million. And I just rotate them and just try and have some some fun with it. So, look, it's it's uh, it's not digging ditches, but it's relative to what we do. It's hard. It's basically like log rolling for three and a half hours. I'm just trying not to fall. It's kind of. I would say it's kind of like log rolling for three and a half hours, and then they occasionally toss me some chainsaws to juggle. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing a great job. And, and not to get too serious for a second, but just I want to get your thought on, you know, are you in the mindset of a guy like Jason Stark, who I've read multiple stories that just due to, 
you know, the sign stealing punishments and the suspensions of different managers and the back and forth bickering that happened between the owners and the players. Do you agree that right now baseball might be, to the casual sports fan at least, in its lowest spot perspective-wise since the strike-shortened season of the mid-90s? Um, you mean like how it's held the esteem or the, the, the focus that it's held in by the, by the viewing public or by the fans? Exactly. Probably. I, I will say, I don't think, I, I, so my opinion is stuff like the Astros scandal. I, I don't think that that has resonates long-term. I just don't. Really? I think that we're, I don't, I really don't. I think people get over stuff. Uh, you know, when they got over steroids and they got over um, the strike, you know. That's true. Heck, steroid, steroids help get, people over the strike i i just i don't i think that people overstate it look you can go if you sit there and punch it into your google machine you can find baseball is dying in every decade and i'm talking about going back to like the 20s baseball is dying john miller has a great book i think it's called confessions of a baseball purist and one of his quotes at the beginning of the book is and i'm paraphrasing here but it's effectively the problem with pet players today is that they get paid too much money and they don't know the fundamentals and the game is much worse for it and the quote from ty cobb <laughs> you know so like it's it's the same notes over and over again where in my opinion the sport has a problem is that in today's world of technology of short attention span theater they have to do something. Baseball's not going to die tomorrow, right? right? I make this point over and over again. Baseball last year, guys, made $2 billion more than the NBA. Wow. Think about that. $2 billion more than the NBA. It's not dying tomorrow, but it's headed on a trajectory where things aren't going in the right direction. And the problem is it's just too slow and not enough's happening, and you've got to tweak those things. It's, I think the players are better than ever. I think analytics play in because of the information. People play slower. But you have these three things happening at once. The games are getting longer. The amount of time between pitches getting longer. The amount of time between the ball in play getting longer. And summing that up, what it, what it really means is it's taking too much time for nothing to happen. And that is what, in my opinion, is going to really harm this game. If we're doing, if we wanted to do it like this, nothing but strikeouts, walks, and homers, and I guarantee you, you'd be done in a two and a half hour window. I think it could sustain. I, I wouldn't advocate for that. Right. I would advocate trying to affect all three elements. But right now, I, I do think that it's a problem, and they've got to they've got to address it. And it's not uh, it's not so simple. So, and they've been implementing different things. You know, the now there's a minimum three batter rule when a pitcher comes in, so you can't do my favorite. Thing. And that will, and that will do nothing. By the way, that it, that will do nothing to affect what I'm talking about. Nothing. Really, you don't. But you, I mean, that's taking away my favorite thing, where a uh, manager calls up a pinch hitter, and as soon as he's announced, the other manager comes out, calls in a bullpen guy, and then the first manager brings back that guy. You don't think it'll take that away, or do you, are you saying that's just so, you know, once every? How one, old are you? 
How old am I? 28. 28. Yeah. Okay. I, they don't do as much of that anymore. Yeah. They really don't. Like, look at relievers now. Like, you don't have these Tony Fossis guys that make 87 appearances and throw 37 innings anymore. Right. These guys are out there, whether it's righty or lefty, to throw a full inning. So that creeping Tony LaRussaism that you see in the that you used to see in the sport, you just don't see as much. Like to me, they're solving a problem from like 1995 with the three batter minimum. Right. It's not. It's not a 2020 problem. Okay, in my well, opinion. Okay, well, let me ask you this. I want your opinion on these two rule changes then. So the universal DH and the runner starting at second to start extra innings. Do you think these are here to stay long term? And are you more of a traditionalist, or are you in favor of these two changes? So I grew up a National League fan, so I've always liked National League ball better. I still identify more with it. And for the longest time, I just I didn't like the DH, but I've changed and I've shifted. I think that the universal DH is here to stay. I think it's a good thing. My number one thing for why it's a good thing is that, look, we know pitchers can't hit. They're actually getting worse at it. And then the, the best argument that you can make as far as allowing the pitchers to still hit is that the style is different. Style in one league, and what that ties into is tactically how will it play. But here's the hook, fellas. These guys go five innings now. Nobody's going up there and getting four plate appearances. So ultimately, the pitcher who's worse at hitting than he's ever been at any point, is now getting a chance to hit twice, and you're pinch hitting twice. So you're already it's, – it's barely a factor to begin with. So you're, you're using somebody to hit for him when he's pitching well. Right. I'm not talking about like Verlander or, or let's say Scherzer or, or somebody like that, but they're not even getting a chance. To, they're, they're going five and dive, and they're hitting twice. So – so, yes, I think it's here to stay. I'm fine with it. The runner at second rule, I think for this year, well, let's start with this. The runner at second rule I'm a fan of from from this standpoint. We don't – if we're playing 162 exactly. games, we, exactly. don't, we don't need six-hour games. We just don't. I, it's a little too gimmicky for my tastes for this year – I'm totally fine with it because this year is so different. I, I think it's actually kind of cool for this year. This year should be different. I wish this year there were twice as many teams in the playoffs. I don't want to see that long term. I want it to stay at 10. And by the way, it's not going to stay at 10. But this year, I think it would have been a blast if 60-game sprint, weird teams get in, right. and then you let 20 teams into the playoffs. And you had like a couple of rounds of like single elimination. Man, that would be some fun TV viewing. Just because this year will be different. And everybody will remember it's different. And yes, if you're going to ask me, the team still gets the trophy. But I will also tell you, I'm an advocate for ties. I, I, like, I, it's too, long term, the runner at second. Like, I'm a, I'm a numbers dork. And I like, you know, I don't want a guy just magically. Now, each action takes place on the field and how it le leads to a result. Um, I know that, you know, it's Merca and nobody in, in Merca likes ties, but right. look, here's the reality. In Korea, they play ties after 12. Okay. Last year 
it's a 10 team league, 144 games. You know how many ties there were? Seven. Hmm. They, it's a 10 team league this year. They played 60 games. There's been one tie. Everybody will be fine with a tie. And if, and how are we going to figure it out? By 62 games and your team doesn't get in the playoffs, win more games. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So I know we only have you for a few minutes. I, 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 I don't know whether it's true, but, you know. Right, right, just, right. You know, that, that's what I got. That's good, and I know we only have a few more minutes, so I, I quickly want to touch on some you know predictions and whatnot. It's a it's a compact sixty game season, so in your opinion, who are some teams that might stick out that it will benefit, and maybe what is one like normal favorite that a compact sprint type as opposed to the marathon that that might hurt their chances of winning the World Series. So I can't look. It's so funny. I've done I've done this. This interview, what feels like now, nine billion times. And I've also had people on, and I understand why the question is asked. I think I've probably asked the question. So I get where it's coming from. But it's, it's a pointless question because you're effectively asking, do you have an idea when a team's going to play well? Like you're basically asking, do you think somebody's going to get off to a hot start? Because in the end, my point, what, what I'm saying is, I, I still think that if you want to do it well, your brain defaults to who are the good teams? The good teams are the Dodgers and the Yankees, yep. period. I, and so, I mean, if look, the, the Rays have a really good bullpen. If you told me the Rays were going to win this World Series, I would just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, okay, I buy that. So I, I, I'm not really – if you're looking for a sleeper, I know a lot of people like the Padres and the White Sox. I think a sleeper team, not to win the World Series, and they're not going to win the division, but a sleeper team to get in the playoffs for me would be the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think the Arizona Diamondbacks will be uh, decent this year. But So I, I get why you asked the question, but I don't, I don't know. My brain can't do – you know. I, I'm just, my brain just does true talent level and who do I think is going to be good. I, I can't project, like, who's going to get off to a hot start. Like, Jacob DeGrom's the best pitcher in the National League. I'm working on the assumption, is back aside, but I'm working right. on the assumption that Jacob DeGrom is going to pitch well from the start of the season. You can't, you know, right. if you're assuming he's going to be the Cy Young Award winner, you're just going to assume that he's going to be good right away. Well, I'm gonna. Well, the, here's one reason I ask, and I want to get your thoughts on the Mets overall, and then we have one more question after that, so we're gonna work as fast as possible. But, like, I think a yeah. team like the Mets, who, in my opinion, is built terribly because they have no farm system anymore and they're relying on veterans. I think a shortened season where Robinson Cano can't necessarily break down halfway, or you know, their their lineup is so weird because they have so many like average to above average players where you can work those guys in. You can throw Dom Smith at first and have Alonzo take a seat. Like Cespedes will be able to DH. I think a season like this is perfect for the Mets, and it could be because at this time or at the beginning of a season, I'm always optimistic about the Mets. Then halfway through, I want them to dismantle the whole team. But that was my point about that question. So what are your overall thoughts on the Mets' chances? You mentioned they have the best pitcher, to me, in baseball, but definitely, or excuse me, like you just said, in the NL. And hopefully his back yep. stays safe. But they did lose Syndergaard. Um, they they're relying on Stroman to step up, which I don't necessarily think he did last year. So, what are your thoughts on the Mets? They lost Wheeler, right. and they lost Wheeler too. Right. Um, one of the things that I really disliked about the Mets 
that has been fundamental to the good teams is the good teams over the course of the last four or five years, for the most part, have been very good defensive exactly. teams. Thank you. Um, the Yankees don't fall into that category, but most of the other ones do. The Red Sox weren't great. The Dodgers have been a brilliant defensive team. The Astros have been a brilliant defensive team. Um, the Braves have been pretty good. So, that you know, the A's are a good defensive team. I, I think the point of the Mets is fair in terms of guys breaking down. I think the DH helps them a lot between Cespedes and Cano. Um, I think they should score. It's a tough division. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand your – I understand your your thought and your argument uh, as, as it relates to them sixty games versus one sixty two, but again, I, I you know I get the probability of injuries, but like you know you sit there and talk about keeping Cano healthy, you know look at Robinson Cano's baseball reference page, man, like twelve straight ten straight years of playing one hundred and fifty nine games, right, right. so I, to predict like. He wouldn't be able to stay healthy. I just, it's, I don't know what to, to say on that. I think that, you know, as it relates to Cespedes, that's fair. I think they'll have a chance to win the division. I think the Braves will probably win the division, but I think they'll have a chance to win the division. Okay, and then my last question before we let you go, what is, so and it, I hope, hopefully you have one on hand. I feel like this is a question that if you're at a bar, someone would ask you, your favorite call you've had in the booth, what was it? Favorite, you mean like single call? You mean like moment? Sure, yeah, yep. I mean, I, the first one I think of, it, it's still, at this point, it's sort of like a joke to it, but it's still cool, was the 2003 World Series, the Marlins were down 2-1 in the 12th inning, and Alex Gonzalez hit a walk-off home run of the World Series. The 3-2, swing and a drive, down the left field line. This one's got a chance, curling, gone! It's gone! Alex Gonzalez has done it in the bottom of the 12th inning in Game 4, and the Marlins have tied this series at two games apiece. What a tough postseason for Alex Gonzalez, and he delivers in the 12th and your final in 12. The Marlins 4, and the Yankees 3 on the walk-off jack by Gonzo. Very few of those, and they actually they put it on a bottle opener that I still have. And actually, I see Alex every once in a while, and he still has it. And it, it makes him giggle, which which makes me happy. I would say that, and then as a as a broad, you know, moment, I got to call Roy Halladay's postseason no hitter. Oh wow! And that was pretty special. Wow, it would be cool. Very cool. Okay, so Boog, we'll let you go now. We really appreciate you coming on. I know you're going to the Michael K show, so it's so funny that you're going from us to him. <laughs> but uh, it's, like it's like you're going from the single A in Buffalo to the majors. Yeah. So this no, is awesome. No, absolutely not. No. Have you ever been, have you ever been to Buffalo? I've... What's that? Have you ever been to Buffalo before? I have. I, you know, the only time that I've been to Buffalo. Uh, well, that's no. I take that back. I have family in Buffalo, and we've had some oh, some wow. uh, retreats up there. But like, but it, it, it the last time, like as an adult, that I was there, I went there a, a bunch as a kid. But uh, we had some family reunions. But I think it was 1996. I traveled one year with the Florida Panthers. Wow! And so we went there um, to and the. the 
the uh, the odd was gone. It was the new it was the new joint, yep. and I, I went to the Anchor Bar, and that's kind of all I remember. All right, it's well, a lot different now. Yeah, a lot different. And so next, if you're ever in Buffalo again, the we'll get you a, a double order of wings in the first rounds on buckets and Dan. So we really appreciate you coming on, and uh, good luck th- this season. Hopefully, we're able to get through the whole thing. I hope so. Uh, thanks for having me, you guys. I appreciate it, and uh, yeah, continued success. Alrighty then. Our Buffalo Sports Blast from the Past is brought to you by R.E. McNamara. Have you been working from home and noticing how many rooms need an upgrade? Call R.E. McNamara at 741-4819. From basements to bedrooms, kitchens to attics, and especially when you want to convert a room into your home office, R.E. McNamara has you covered. 741-4819. We are very excited to welcome on former Buffalo Bisons manager who led the Bisons to the 2004 International League title, Marty Brown. Marty, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, good morning, Dan. Thank you. And, Marty, I'd love to start with your own career. Can you tell us just a little bit about where you grew up, how you fell in love with the game, and when a career in baseball really became a serious thought for you? Oh, I grew up in uh, in Rolla, Missouri. That's where I, I live now. I actually have opened up a baseball academy in the, in this area. And it's, uh, you know, it's not a, a real big town, about 20,000 people, and uh, not a huge amount of interest in baseball at this at this time, as baseball's kind of dwindled a little bit with the younger generation. But yeah, I grew up, and from the time I was uh, I started playing, I loved the game of baseball, and it was always my favorite sport. I I played uh, basketball and football, and had the opportunity to uh, move on and play uh, college baseball at uh, University of Missouri. And I went to Crowder College, and from there. Crowder's kind of down in southwest Missouri. And then I, from there, I went to the University of Georgia, and that's when I was drafted by the Reds in the 12th round in 1985. Yeah, and you mentioned you got drafted by the Reds. Was that something you expected? Not really. It was. I didn't know who was going to draft me. I'd heard that the Cubs were going to draft me the year before, and uh, that didn't happen. And fortunately, you know, Georgia being on the verge of winning a national championship uh, – after I left, uh, they kept me around my senior year, and I, as I'd had a good junior season, and I knew I, w- I, I really had the idea I was going to be drafted, but I didn't know by who. And and fortunately, it was the Reds because they had such a great development system. And it was, uh, you know, coming up in that organization. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they kind of looked at the Reds organization as the model of how development should be. And it was great for me because I learned how to manage during my playing days, which was uh, pretty instrumental, you know, being with the Reds and then moving on as a manager was uh, was really kind of an easier transition. So you're drafted in 1985, and you make your MLB debut a few years later in 1988. And before we get into your own playing and some of your teammates, I mean, Pete Rose is your manager, an absolute legend. Um, what was it like playing under him, and what kind of relationship did you have? Well, I grew up uh, idolizing Pete. He was my hero. That's the way I played and really felt good about going into the organization. And I went through the, the minor leagues pretty fast uh, when you look at it. And 
I got to meet Pete quite often. Uh, I was a most valuable player my first two years on each of those two teams. And during that time, you would go to Cincinnati and Budweiser put on an MVP for every affiliate. And so I went two years in a row and I was around Pete during that time. And uh, he, he was, uh, you know, he liked to think of himself as a younger, you know, manager, like a young player manager. And I don't know if that was necessarily the case, but he, he had huge charisma. He was a, you know, he thought very highly of himself, which he should have. <laughs> so right. there was no lack of confidence with Pete. And he, you know, for being in the organization, a young player looking up to him when I was growing up and, and playing baseball, uh, I thought I was in a really good situation. And you're still with the organization in 1989 when he infamously gets caught betting on the Reds and he gets the lifetime ban from baseball. What was going through your mind at the time? And now that you can look back and you've had your own managerial career, do you think the punishment fit the crime? Well, I think that Pete, with the things that he accomplished as a player, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I do believe that, you know, what I learned from Pete as a manager was not to gamble on baseball. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I think that there's uh, the many positives to Pete Rose, and I think, you know, they, they outweigh the negatives. Uh, you know, I know Pete realizes he's, he's wrong. I've seen some interviews now where he's, you know, finally uh, kind of fessed up to what happened during that time. But Pete grew up in an age and an era where, you know, he was around gambling all the time as a kid with his, his dad and stuff. So it was, uh, you know, it was one of those unfortunate things that happened in his career. And it's really, it's, it's kind of hampered uh, his way to the Hall of Fame. And I think one day, you know, he'll be in there. I don't know if it's going to be before he uh, passes on, but I think he's, he's one of those guys that with his playing career, he definitely deserves, uh, you know, that, consideration to get to the Hall of Fame. I agree. I think he should be in, too. And I was looking through some of the rosters from those 88 and 89 Reds. you got some big names. I mean, Barry Larkin in 1988 makes his first of 11 All-Star appearances. you got Paul O'Neill and Eric Davis on the team. As a Mets fan myself, I mean, John Franco was in the prime of his career there. You even got Ken Griffey Sr. coming over from the Yankees. So when you were up with the Reds, what teammates stuck out to you as special, and who did you face as a batter, you know, looking at the pitcher's mound and think, this is crazy, I'm really in the major leagues? Well, I was around, you know, you mentioned Ken Griffey Sr. Every time I think of Ken Griffey Sr., uh, we sat on the, uh, you know, in the dugout. I wasn't playing that day, and neither was he. He was more of a pinch hitter at that time in his career. And we watched Tom Browning throw a perfect game, and we didn't move from the sixth inning on. I mean, we didn't even move our stick. We had, I mean, I think if I'd had to go to the bathroom, I'd have just had to done it right there because I wouldn't <laughs> move to jinx Tom game. And it was, uh, you know, he was a special kind of a guy, Tom Browning, tremendous personality, good teammate, and he he uh, just had a really special day. And and you know, we had so many good guys and, and talented players. You know, Cal Daniels. Uh, was one one really talented hitter. Eric Davis is he he did everything. Uh, and you mentioned John Franco. You know, one time I was coming across the field playing third base, and the ball was off of the mound. And John had just entered the game, and I picked the ball up, and and uh, he he yelled at me to drop the ball. Don't ever touch the ball. <laughs> I was like, oh okay. You know, so to this day, when I go out to the mound and, and some of our younger teams, you know, I go out and there'll be a ball laying there. I don't even touch the ball. I, I, John, John, 
told me not to do it. And I just, from this, you know, here I am 57 years old. And I still think of that every time I go across the field and there's a ball laying there. That's funny. And then you go to the Orioles organization in 1990. And again, another manager with a very large pedigree, you get to play under hall of famer, Frank Robinson. What was he like? Well, Frank was a, he was, it was a frustrating time for Frank. And, you know, I, I, I became really good friends with Billy Ripken and Cal Ripken during my time there. And they were, they were a little bit better, I think, because of their dad's situation before Frank came on. And, and uh, you know, so I, I felt a, a certain loyalty to Cal and, and to, uh, you know, Billy and, and, and Senior. And, you know, there was, uh, I think Frank kind of felt that, you know, so we didn't necessarily mesh real well. Uh, I've since talked to Frank after, you know, I started managing and I saw, I've seen Frank many, many times as he's still in baseball and doing his thing with the, uh, you know, the front office in right. some way of, of MSB. And so I meet up with him and, and we're fine. We've, we're still friends. And he's, you know, I think it was just a difficult time because a lot of people were pulling different dire- directions. He was a good manager. You know, Pete was a good manager. He, he ran the game uh, really well. And so did Frank, you know, they knew the game of baseball. They knew what to do and the situations they would be put in. They tried to put, players in situations to succeed you know that's the one thing i think i learned from both of them they wanted guys to to do well and so they didn't match them up in extremely hard matchups they tried to make it as easy as they could on players and i think that's a a really uh you know positive when you think about learning from them uh as a you know a future manager and then working your way through the career you then play for colorado springs under the cleveland indians affiliate and your teammates include guys for little stints such as Albert Bell and Jim Tomey. So I have two questions. Was Albert Bell as angry as he seems? And could you tell Jim Tomey was going to be a special player even at that young age? Everybody knew Jim was going to be a special player. You know, he was raw. He was, uh, you know, a kid that didn't know everything. He was still just such a student of the, of the game. And, and he was very fortunate because he was around the best manager I ever played for was Charlie Manuel. Oh, right, right. And, I, you know, and Charlie was, uh, and, you know, he was always, Jimmy was always Charlie's boy because you could hear a special sound off the bat when Jimmy would hit. And you knew he was going to make it, you know, and, uh, and he was going to be something special. And so he was really young at that time, though. I and mean, he was at a high level and, and very young. And, you know, I always tried to help him out as best I could. But, shoot, he could. He could uh, out hit any of us, and then you know he he moved on to bigger and better things. And he, like I said, he was Charlie's boy, man. Charlie Charlie put him under his wing and taught Jimmy an awful lot about hitting and and just situations. And it was it was he was always going to be special. And then Albert, you know Albert, when he came down and played for Charlie, it was not an issue ever. Uh, you know he Albert was temperamental. Uh, he felt it somewhat, I think, uh, disgruntled in how he was labeled. Uh, but he brought it on himself, and we 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 were teasing about that. And but he was on his best behavior. I don't think Charlie ever had a, a problem with him, and he played hard, man. When he was in AAA, he played hard. He played to win. One of my favorite baseball memories, actually, of Jim Tomey, and you might have been with the Bisons at the time, but they had like kind of like an All Star Game thing where the Indians came down and did some stuff with the Bisons, and there was a home run derby where Jim Tomey hit multiple balls just clean out of the park into the parking ramp. And as a little kid, I've never seen anything like that, so I'll always remember that. But you then go over to Japan and play three years there. So I have a few questions. One, 
what went into the decision, and I would like to know how how do players get treated over there? Do they get treated any differently than the you know the Japanese players? I I think you know it, you're always a foreign player when you go over there, right? You know, uh, and you're different. You know, you only have so many foreign players even allowed to be on this team at one time. So it, it, it makes it, you know, they, they kind of kept the game within Japan and, and being a player over there, it was a great opportunity for me. And I probably wouldn't have gotten that opportunity if it, if it weren't for Charlie Manuel, because Charlie played over there too. So, you know, I started talking to Charlie about going to Japan uh, when I first started playing for him, telling him how interested I would be in it because I saw my career is up and down, up and down. And I wanted to, you know, try something different and go over and see if I could make, uh, some money, you know, for my family and, and stuff. But I really enjoyed my time in Japan as a player and a manager. And I, you know, I'm I'm married a young Asian pretty girl, and she's over here with me. So I always think of myself. I say nice. that I bring I, I brought the best part of Japan home with me. So. <laughs> That's awesome. That's nice. And a couple more questions on this: uh, Is there a different style of play over there? And where did the power surge come from? Twenty-seven home runs and eighty-three RBIs in nineteen ninety-three. Well, you know, it, it was a different, you know, the fields over there at that time when I played, especially our home ballpark, I mean, you could almost take a leak over the wall. It was pretty short. So I hate to say, hate to sell myself short. I did hit some big bombing home runs over there, but uh, our, our home park was pretty small. They've, they've <laughs> since built a new ballpark there in Hiroshima, and uh, it's a lot more legit. But back in the day, the small bar, ballpark uh, really was good for me as a player and, and it helped me extend my career over there so it was a it was you know obviously it was kind of match made in heaven over there for me I, I got a chance to go over and play for a really good player and uh, a guy named Koji Yamamoto he was a, a really good manager I thought he ran a great game and he was very personable uh, but yeah it's it's a different culture you know they play differently some in some ways they play for a run early in the game and then they play you know, try to try to relax the team because there is a lot of anxiety in Japan mm-hmm. with players. And then, uh, you know, when you look at it, if you're in the National League, there's seven, eight, nine. You really are three outs. Right. So you've got to really try to manage, uh, you know, in through your front front six hitters. And and it's just the uh, catchers don't hit over there very often. You'll see that that's one of the prime uh, things that they can get ahead in when they have a catcher that's offensive oriented. And because uh, that's one of those seven, eight, nine players. So it's, uh, you know, just really, it's a different type game, a different type culture, very respectful culture. Uh, and I really enjoyed my time there. Interesting. And don't worry, Marty, the 27 home runs, no one looks at the size of the ballpark. It goes down in the stat sheet all the same. So... <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't have said that, I guess. But, you know, <laughs> that was probably the biggest reason I think I hit 27, but I, you know, I, I had to change my career around a lot. I was I was normally in college. I was a leadoff hitter, and you know, I stole 58 bases one year in A ball. And so it was a, I was more of a speed guy. And so when I went to the University of Georgia, I had to change that around. Howie McCann was a uh, was the uh, assistant coach at Georgia at the time. He recruited me, and and I went there, and he he kind of revamped my swing to where I was more of a power hitter, and uh, and I hit in the middle of the order at Georgia. And so when I was drafted, that was what I was intended to do. And uh, first year I hit 10 and a half season, and the next year I hit 18. And and it was, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I think I zoomed through the system so quick is that they saw me hitting for power, and I was around some really good hitting coaches in the Reds organization. And Danny Lipweiler 
was uh, one of my favorites. He was our, he was our, one of our hitting coordinators, Ted, Ted Klazuski, who people can remember. He's the guy that had to cut his arm sleeves because his arms were so big, you know. <laughs> so it was a it was a good match for me to go to the Reds and, and be around, you know, really productive development people. Yeah, Bill and I have never had to cut our arm sleeves because of that. But uh, when we fast <laughs> no, forward. You, you either. <laughs> When we fast forward to 1997, that's when you start managing. You start in the pirate system. So, is that was that always part of the plan? Did you see yourself? I know you mentioned that you started learning how to manage in the minor. So, were you always kind of a cerebral type player looking to get into managing afterward? And I know you've mentioned some already, but who were your biggest influences? Bill and I both coach, and obviously both have mentors. So, throughout your playing, even as a younger player or as you grew up, who are some of the managers that influenced you the most? Well, as far as manager goes, I think Charlie was, was a, a big influence in my, you know, going on and managing. Uh, and, and I got a lot of that. I never really looked at myself as a manager. I looked at it as though I was going to, you know, take advantage of the situation at hand. And when I was with Baltimore and I came in, that was the year we had uh, extra players. And so we, there was a few of us that went in to, to the Roland Heeman's office. And when I got in there, Roland asked me if I ever thought about managing and I was like, oh, I didn't make the team? What are you talking about? And he goes, no, after you get done playing, would you consider managing for us? And I got that a lot coming up through the Reds organization as well. So it was, it was not really my thought to do that. It was, it was basically just it had been brought upon me. And then when I got done playing, I came back and I called Cam Bonifay, who was the scout that originally signed me with the Reds, and he was then the GM of, of Pittsburgh. And he put me in touch with a guy named Paul Tunnell, and I interviewed, and I got the job. And so that's how that kind of went down as, as the start of my managing career. And it, it, uh, it wasn't something really planned out early. It was more of something that kind of dropped in my lap, and I was very fortunate. I'm absolutely loving this interview, Marty. Bucket's here. You had a couple of years with the Cincinnati Reds organization, and then eventually are hired – as the Bison's manager in 2003, as they are the farm club, AAA farm club of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, you're a hair over 500 games in 2003, but everyone in Buffalo and Western New York remembers and loves to reminisce on that 2004 team, especially because the team hasn't had a ton of success since. But I want to ask you a couple questions about that season because it's very interesting to me. In, in the middle of June, you're down 10 games in the division, and you end up winning the division by nine and a half games. What was really the change that kind of sparked the club to get on such a hot streak that year? The biggest change was John Farrell uh, let go of our original pitching coach, who was Terry Clark, and brought in uh, old-time, old man Kenny Rowe. And I think he was a big influence in our pitching staff, and he was set in his ways, and he would – I learned a lot from Kenny Rowe just managing, and he's the pitching coach. So it was uh, we worked well together. He was a, just a really likable guy. He could be a little cantankerous at times, but I, <laughs> I was I appreciated it. He was he was a uh, he was just old school, and we got along great. I, I loved his demeanor and what he brought to the table for the uh, pitching staff. And our pitching staff, I mean, clicked. And it was funny because Kenny. He was just the most calm guy and sitting down on the bench, and he even got me to sit down. He'd say, Marty, why don't you sit nervous, you know? And I'd be like, oh, okay. So I'd go sit down, and I'd watch the game. And as we started getting closer and closer and closer, because we were, we, you're exactly right, we were really not 
achieving what we should have been achieving. And and Kenny turned it around as we got close and we started getting, you know, up in the standings, getting closer to first place. You could see Kenny's demeanor. He was trying hard not to change his demeanor. But he was getting more and more excited. We just had a blast. It was a fun, a really fun season. And of course, it should have been with all the talent we had on the field. Yeah, that talent you had, the, the three guys that I remember most vividly have to be Johnny Peralta, Brandon Phillips, and Grady Sizemore. All went on to have uh, pretty good MLB careers, I'd say. Uh, talk about what you remember from those three guys and coaching them. Well, I mean, they, they're very special players. You know, unfortunately, Grady got hurt. We didn't really see him at his best, I don't think. He was, he was a, you know, just a, a manager's dream. He did everything, you know, just the way a manager would want. He'd, be, he'd run through a wall for you, uh, got big hits. You know, he was just you know, just a great personality, good person. Uh, you know, Brandon, Brandon was a, a really special defensive player. And he did everything we asked of him in AAA. And unfortunately, he didn't get called up uh, after that season. And he was really, uh, you know, kind of he, – he, he did not – he wasn't the same guy after that with the Cleveland organization. So it was probably good for him that he did get traded. Uh, and, but he was a special player too. I mean, he, but he could he, – you know, he was, a, he was a winner, you know. He wanted to win. Every, and all, all those guys. We also got Cliff Lee. Yep, yep. And Cliff was uh, – Man, what a special pitcher he was, man. He could just sit and tell everybody, here's a fastball, and they couldn't hit it. I mean, it was just four seams over the top. He had a really good curveball, and obviously he won a Cy Young later. And uh, yeah, and and I think a, 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 big, a big key uh, to our season that year was a guy named Russell Brannion. Yep. And him coming in and kind of stabilizing, you know, wherever we put him. I could put him in the outfield third, first. It didn't matter, but. The first thing I told Russell was, I don't care how many times you strike out. I don't, I don't want to hear about that. Because that was always in Russell's head. He certainly took that and, to heart. Russell, yeah, he did. I mean, he hit a lot of home runs with two strikes. And I, and I didn't, you know, I told him he'd never hear a word from me any time he struck out. Well, that wasn't my objective. And as a young player, I think he really got, it got in his head. And he went off. I mean, he hit home run after home run, towering home runs in Buffalo. And he really enjoyed his experience. He roomed with Grady. I think he taught Grady a lot of good things, not bad things. And uh, and so it was a, a positive situation for Russell, and he left there and went on to Seattle and, and really finished up his career. It's crazy thinking back to that 2002 trade where I believe it was Cologne got traded for Cliff Lee, Sizemore, and Brandon Phillips, and that really helped, you know, obviously spark um, some great success at the AAA level. But I'd like to talk about maybe any of the conversations you had with uh, Cleveland in September because I'm sure Cleveland could have opted to take a couple of your best players for their 40-man roster in September. Was there any kind of like, you know, tugging and pulling on who was going to stay in Buffalo at that time? Because I'm sure you guys were, you know, so hot thinking, you know, this could be a serious run for a AAA championship. Well, John Farrell was always good about that. And I think, you know, in a lot of organizations, you know, winning is, is – not going to take over development, but I think winning and development are the same thing. Yeah, and that's the way it was in the Reds organization. Uh, it was never, it was never to hamper a person to not get to the big leagues, but it was always about, Hey, you started this, let's finish it. And our players were all aboard. They didn't, there was nobody that had their, ba their bags packed and sitting in the, you know, in the parking lot waiting to go to, to Cleveland. It was all about, Hey, we want to win this thing. And it was, we were down like three, nothing early on, uh, 
or two nothing early on against Durham, and we came back and won that series. And it was, uh, you know, against Richmond, it was a l- not quite as close, but they were a really good team too with Pete Orr and and uh, you know all the all those talented players they had over there, Tessman, and you know it was a good series. But I mean, the Durham series is the one that really was tough. With uh, you know, so we. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Man. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to ask. I believe I remember. Didn't weren't all those games played in Buffalo that Richmond series because of yeah. the hurricane in Richmond at the time? Yes, and it was a uh, you know it was to our advantage, obviously being in Buffalo. And that back then, man, we had really huge crowds, and I mean just a huge amount of support from the Buffalo fans. And we and it was a you know it was it was kind of uh, a negative for Richmond, but they had some field issues, and we, there was no way we could play or play safely uh, against Richmond there at their home park. So they had to play. They had to come to our place and play all of them. And it was a good series. It really was, and it, and it turned out to be. Uh, you know, I think a, a good development experience for all of our guys that got called up and, and even those that didn't, because I still get, you know, letters and, and uh, things like that from players that were on that team and they still call me up and ask me questions about what had happened and how am I doing and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, you know, you kind of you, you make lifelong friends in, in the minor leagues and no exception to the rule with that team. I mean, and we didn't mention, I didn't talk about Johnny Peralta, but I've seen Johnny as I managed and we've talked and, and Victor Martinez and, you know, all those guys, they're all like, Hey Marty, how's it going? And they talk about questions and things that happened usually on the bus, something stupid, but there are some playing questions too, but it's, you know, they're, they were just a great group, all of them together. What a team. And I was there that night about 20 rows behind home plate. It's one of my favorite all-time memories. I was 13 years old. Uh, where does, In terms of your career, both playing and managing, does that, that night, it's just such a special night, does that rank up pretty highly for you? Oh, yes, for sure. You know, I love Buffalo. Buffalo is very dear to me. I, uh, you know, I just, all that front office staff, they're still, I mean, some of my best friends, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that year was definitely, you know, I hated the league. I came back in 05, and then they, they kind of wanted to push uh, Tory up to managing, and I found uh, the opportunity to go to Japan to manage. And so it was one of those things I think the organization wanted to move and get some new blood in there. And, I, I, you know, it was no hard feelings. I loved, loved being in Cleveland. I loved John Farrell to death and ended up working with him again when he was in Toronto. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just – I think it was just a great match. You know, I hated to see Cleveland move out of there, but I think, uh, you know, New York coming in there and then finally Toronto being there. Hey, I hear you got a chance to get the Blue Jays in Buffalo. Is there any truth to that? Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, the, the – I guess the issues right now surrounding that is the lighting and for TV purposes. Uh, yeah, I heard that. Well, it didn't affect that team in 04. That's right. You know, right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure they made some upgrades on it too. So, and Marty, you mentioned. I'm, I'm sure. Oh, 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 go ahead. If the, if the Blue Jays, if the Blue Jays are coming in there, I'm sure Mr. Rich makes sure the lighting's okay. Exactly. Exactly. Good point. See, I don't see that's going to be a problem. So. And you mentioned you went over to Japan. Talk about what that was like. Obviously, you know, you mentioned your wife, so that must have been nice going back. Um, I would assume together for a little bit. And what you know, talk about what it's like managing just a different type game. You mentioned the difference in playing. Um, obviously, there must be some difference in managing as well. Well, I didn't. Re- you know, I played there for three and a half years, and then I I came back 
as a manager and I didn't, I really thought I knew the culture. You know, I thought I, I had learned enough about the culture, but I didn't, I didn't realize, uh, you know, there was such of an anxiety and a communication gap and why they did certain things. And, you know, and it was, it was really about their confidence level. You know, they felt if they took, you know, a thousand swings a night, it, it was going to boost their, their game. And I was like, well, you guys are, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of pushing it. You're going to get injured. You can't play. And so there were a lot of, you know, I'd push one way and they'd push another. And, you know, I think I brought a, a different element of the way to look at the pitching and uh, kind of a way to look at the game itself. We weren't going to bunt in the first inning. We weren't going to, you know, the things that they were used to doing. And and we basically got the pitching staff to pitch in the zone. They'd walk 500 people the year before I got there. And the next year they walked, I think, uh, under 300. So it was, uh, you know, it was a good learning experience for me just to be able to adapt to a different culture. And I think it was good for them to see, you know, it's good, you know, they, they get to have a manager with a new set of eyes, look at each player. And some of their careers were resurrected just because I didn't look at it in a biased fashion. I looked at it as though, Hey, you know, how come we're not playing this kid more? And then he'd end up being a best nine player, which for them, that's like an all-star at the end of the season. And so that's a, it's a really big deal. So it was, you know, some of those things that happened were really good for Japanese baseball. Even in Rakuten, when I went there, there were, you know, they kind of, labeled some of the guys and then i go and see him and i'd say hold it I, I like this guy how come you don't like him well he did this and did that and i said well, i haven't seen him do that yet so it was a way to put a fresh set of eyes on on players and i think the players really appreciated that absolutely and then i believe it's in 2012 you come back to buffalo with the blue jays organization you mentioned the fond memories you have of buffalo so is that something you were looking forward to oh man i was extremely pleased to hear that i was headed back to buffalo plus Las Vegas was a, I mean, it was it was a, a good place to live, a good place to play there. But I mean, gosh, man, you talk about hot. I really appreciated Buffalo's early yeah. season weather, <laughs> but you know the summers and stuff, and how pleasant they were. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I was excited to work with you know John Dandies and Mike Buchkowski and Scott Lesher and get back into the clubhouse, and it's just it was just like coming home. So it was a a really uh, a good time for me. And, Marty, I, I, my Bucket showed me this video before the interview started, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. There's a famous video of you going out to argue with an umpire and then apparently not enjoying what you heard back because you just <laughs> pull an old-fashioned sit-in and sit down and lounge out in the middle of the infield that you end up getting suspended three games for. Can you please, and go into as much detail as you want, go tell us what happened? Well, you know, there was a Buffalo boy playing second base right there, yep. if you remember. Nigrich, right? There was, a, there was an obstruction call, and uh, the umpire had blown the call because the, the runner didn't allow, the, allow him to catch the ball. So I went out and argued the call, and, and of course, I had to get thrown out before he did. And uh, we were in Norfolk, I believe, and, and so this umpire told me to get off the field. And I, I didn't think that was very nice. So I decided, I decided, won't you come pick me up and move me off the field? And that's when I sat down. And, and uh, he just he kind of went back and didn't really do anything about it. And so when I realized they weren't going to do anything about it, I finally moseyed my way off the field and, and went in and, and, uh, and got dressed. But I think it was a, you know appropriate thing to do. It, wasn't, it was a bad call, and the guy wouldn't, 
admit that he made a mistake. Normally, if an umpire tells me, you know, I hey man, I really screwed that up. Exactly. You know, I, I that was that was a bad call. I'll walk off the field. You know, but it's when they start pressing the issue and. Uh, shoot, I got thrown out of a game the other day with 16 and under teams. I went out and this guy told me he was a really good umpire, and I said, I wouldn't go there. And he threw me out of the game. I wasn't even coaching either. Was, I, my staff was coaching, and I was just there. So I'm still not, I'm still not beyond getting tossed out of a game now and again. And I don't I, – believe me, I never intended to do something like that on purpose. No, it was usually just something that happened, and I, and I just felt that it was a need for me to stand up for my players. Hey, Marty, I got two more questions for you, and I think Dan has one more. My first one is, I know Dusty Wathan was on that 4 team. I'm wondering if you've managed against him since. I know he's in the Phillies organization now, and he's been all across the minors. Yeah, Dusty, Dusty Wathan was a really, uh, you know, he came from a managing family. His dad was a manager of the Royals, and uh, just a really a good baseball guy. He was like having another manager on the field. Matter of fact, I got tossed one time, and I think Dusty coached third base. So it was uh, – or both both Carlos and I, I think, got tossed and, and Dusty had to coach third base. But he was that type of guy. He always had the mindset of managing. And, and uh, you know, he, and he couldn't – he was not a very good hitter, but he always got big hits. Like, he was a great hit-and-run guy. He could he could do a lot of things with the bat. But he, he, if, he, if he relied on him, put him in the middle of the order – he wouldn't sniff it, you know. He, but he was a great defensive guy, great mind on the field. And, and uh, yeah, you know, I caught up with Dusty several times. I've talked to him on the phone uh, many times. And he's he's a uh, he's doing a tremendous job in the Phillies organization. And, you know, he's got a great family. He and, he and his uh, family, are, I'm sure, have grown a lot. I haven't talked to him in a long while. I probably need to do that. But he's, uh, you know, a good baseball guy. And my, my other question is kind of different. But I've, I've just always kind of wondered this. And you'll probably know the answer because players in the minor leagues move so much. I'm curious to know, like, where do players live? Do most of the players live in hotels because they don't know if they're going to be there for how long? See, that's different now. In this day and age, I think there is a lot more movement than there used to be when I came came through the Reds organization. Because when you went to a team, you stayed with that team all year. That was a part of your development. You didn't go outside of that plan. Now, before the season starts, if you, you might be a little bit uh, older, then the organization might tell you, hey, you know, don't get something overly permanent. You know, uh, you might be moving up at some point. And, you know, I think that, that that's kind of how that went back in the day. Nowadays, I'm not real sure. I mean, there's just so much movement going on. And, you know, there's not a, there's not a lot of that old school development anymore. It's uh, It's more about – just on a whim, we need a player here, boom, you know. And so they, it's, it's the cost of it and stuff is, I guess, a write-off. I don't know. But it, sometimes it hampers the development of a player when you do that. Uh, and then other times there's instances where you need to move a player up and push him. And, uh, and that, that's just kind of the way organizations do it is different. So it's, uh, it's tough. I mean, if you want to get an apartment, you, you know, get something kind of a short-term apartment and – and a lot of the players did that. I was fortunate. I, I had great places to live in Vegas and in Nashville and, and uh, in Buffalo as well. I, I really had uh, – I got taken care of great. And, Marty, we really appreciate you taking your time. I have one final question, and I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we're looking to go out with a bang here. I, I want your, 
maybe I would like to say like your you know your favorite story or something like that. What I what I refer to it as if you're at a bar with some friends and so and you talk to somebody about being a manager, a former MLB player, what's your go-to story you give? And it could be your favorite memory, you know, a funny interaction, anything like that. Gosh, there's so many. I mean, I have, uh, you know, I, I think one thing that would kind of relate to Buffalo is that Victor Martinez had just coming off, he'd come off the, you know, minor league player of the year. And then he was going to go with me to Buffalo. And so he comes in and he's catching and he gets off to a really, really poor start and he's getting frustrated. And he's, you know, he's kind of starting to turn into a jerk, you know, because he wouldn't run down the line or he carries bat down the line if he, if he hit a ground ball or something. So I jumped, I jumped in for it, and I said, hey, man, we're not going to do that. You know, if you do that again, then I'm going to sit your ass down. Okay, so he he gets the, the, the hint, and then finally he does the same thing again. And he goes in and gets his gear on, and he goes out on the field. And I've already I came in, and I got the catcher ready. And I let Victor warm up the pitcher, and then I, I switched catchers. I just took him up one catcher, second-team catcher. I went out, walked out with the umpire, and I said, hey, he's out of the game. And I brought in a catcher, and I embarrassed him. Oh, I love so, it. I love it. He, he wouldn't come in to the office and say anything to me. And so John Farrell calls me up, and he says, hey, is Victor going to play tonight? And I said, no, he's not. He said, well, how come? I said, because he didn't come in and talk to me. He comes in and talks to me, and he apologizes for how he treated the game of baseball, and I'll play him. John said, okay. So, next day, he doesn't come in and talk to me. He's not in the lineup. John calls me up. Hey, is Victor in the lineup today? I said, no, he's not. He said, listen, man, the front office is coming down to see him in Toledo. So, we need him in the lineup tomorrow. I said, well, that's up to Victor. It's not my fault. I hung up, get off the phone. The next day, he doesn't come in and talk to me. So, oh, John God. calls me up. Says, John calls me up and says, hey, man, we're in town. Is Victor in the lineup? And I said, no. He says, you better put him in the lineup. I said, no, John. You want to make out the lineup? You come down here and make out the lineup. But he's not going in the lineup until he comes and talks to me. He said, go tell Carlos to tell Victor to come and talk to you. So that's how he got back into oh. the game. And this, and check this out. This is what happened. He goes into the game. He's catching. And I'm warming up a pitcher, a pitcher in the bullpen area. I've got my gear on. And I, I'm, we, we, I'd never made our catchers, you know, like our other guys catch guys that were warming up. I'd always catch mm -hmm. back then. I turn around, and there's a play at home plate, and Victor had tagged the guy, and the umpire called him safe. And so the pitcher's in there, and Victor comes in, and he's trying to just touch the umpire to get his t attention. And before I can get there, Victor gets thrown out of the game in the first inning. <laughs> and all the front <laughs> That's karma. And so I go there, and I get thrown out of the game. So Victor and I are in the clubhouse, and we sit in the, in the clubhouse in, in my office and in our underwear, uh, and, and I was drinking beer. Victor wasn't, but uh, – <laughs> We just kind of hung out, and the next day he got in the lineup. And you know what? That guy caught on fire. He, he couldn't make an out after all that happened. And so I think it just kind of changed his perspective about who he was as a player and what was going on. And I think that's development. You know, I don't think it's the front office coming in and talking to players without even letting the manager and the pitching coach know. Exactly. you got to let the manager and pitching coach do their job. And in this day and age, boy, you don't see it. You got the good. lineups made out at the top. The manager, all you do is kind of pick and choose when to put in a bullpen guy. That's about it. You can't go out. You can't question calls. You right. can't do anything. You know, so it's uh, it, that part of the game is missing. I think it's a, a huge part of the game. I know. I think the fans enjoy the the fact when you stand up for a player, you get 
you get accidentally tossed from a game or whatever the case may be, that, that interaction has kind of ceased. I was going to ask you about that, how things are kind of different today. But um, the <clears throat> how about any restaurants, any like any uh, restaurants or places you like to go to in Buffalo that you re- remember? Because who knows, maybe they're not still here anymore. Sometimes we have some uh, some people who used to be here and they ask us if like certain restaurants are still around. Were there any places that you especially loved? Uh, when I came back, I just came back to the Hall of Fame uh, thing. And I, I went down there, and uh, the first place I went to was Mother's. Oh, yeah. I love Mother's. <laughs> and uh, that's probably my best that's my best memory of, of the times that I had in Mother's with, um, you know, my staff or my wife or whatever. And they're just such good people in there. You know, I would recommend Mother's to anybody. Great food, great atmosphere. And, uh, you know, hopefully they're still up and around with all this COVID stuff. But, yep. you know, they're, they're, just, they're good people in there. Well, Marty, we can't thank you enough. Um, you know, congratulations on an awesome career, most wins in Bison's history, a Hall of Famer. We really appreciate your stories, and, you know, you were awesome as our blast from the past. So thank you again. You bet. No problem, guys. I appreciate your time, too. All righty then. Wow. What an absolute awesome show. Thank you to our wonderful guests. We had Ben Wagner. We had John Shambi. Boog Shambi, as some call him. And we had Marty Brown, manager of the 04 Bisons, as our blast from the past. Hope you stuck around through all the interviews. Dan, that was a lot of fun. It was an exhausting week, but this show brought it, for we, sure. We got this one done, Dan. And next week, you know, we're looking forward to the next week because what we are going to bring for you is two fantastic hockey guests. Okay, we're going to preview the NHL playoffs. The timing is working out perfectly. And then looking forward, we're not going to get into it now, but we're going to do a little NBA show the following week. But really looking forward to this next week, Dan. Yeah, we may or may not have a gold medalist on the next show. Whoa, a little hint there. We may or may not have an awesome Sabres blast from the past who played more than 10 years in the NHL. Very good. So we'll see you next week. Love you, Mom. Is you